Welcome, welcome, welcome to Armchair Expert, Experts on Expert. I'm Max Shepard. I'm joined by Monica Mouse. Hi. Hi. Our favorites here for a third time. Three P. Gosh, it's so wonderful to get to talk to this gentleman almost annually now. Yeah. Yuval Noah Harari. Yuval Noah Harari is a historian, a philosopher, and best-selling author. His book, Sapiens, is just the most ginormous book worldwide you can imagine on yes. a topic that no one could have guessed would have been interesting to the world at large. He made it interesting. He sure did. So Sapiens is fantastic. Homo Deus is my preferred of the two books. Mm. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and he has a new book that's based on Sapiens, and it's for kids. It's called Unstoppable Us, Volume 1, How Humans Took Over the World. It is fantastic. Cannot wait to read this book to my girls. Yeah. It's just like selling out. It's so, already sold out? So get it now. Get it now. Get Unstoppable Us. If you know someone with kids in Christmas here, like this is an awesome book Ooh, to get Ooh, that's a great idea. Please enjoy Yuval Noah Harari. Okay, when did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Well, let's just say I'm a weirdo and I want to be messy and see what you're up to, like who you're hanging with. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. I knew you did that. <laughs> no, I did not do that. <laughs> I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends and then use that money any place Apple Pay is accepted. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Monica, please keep it in the chat. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. We are supported by Canva. When your work looks good, you look good. So make sure you create stunning presentations, docs, whiteboards, and videos with Canva. It's a must for your professional life and so easy to use. Just grab one of their designer-made templates or use the power of AI to generate something in seconds. Then add what you need. You can even pull images, graphs, and more from their massive library. And boom, you're done. I have a few friends who've used it for fun, like, invitations or itineraries, and it does look so professional and nice. Yeah, it's clean and classy. And the best part, you need zero design experience to get a really high-end looking product out of it. And 90% of Fortune 500 companies trust Canva to help them get the job done. Get your work done and make it look good with Canva. Start designing today at canva.com, C-A-N-V-A.com, designed for work. He's an armchair expert. He's an armchair expert. He's an armchair expert. Do we need the ear thing? You do not. You don't have to. We it's like it. It's easier to kind of hear myself. We're not here to control you, you all. So why do you put them on? It becomes a silo. Really? Let's try. <laughs> yeah, can I make my argument to you now that you have them on? Yes. Okay, so two things. I think our natural inclination would be to talk louder to each other than we need to because we're 12 feet apart. That sounds crazy when you're listening in your car. There's no need to shout. Number two, it isolates all the other auditory distractions and puts me in a very tunnel vision connection to your brain. But don't you find that your own voice sounds funny? <laughs> We're used to it, I think, <laughs> unfortunately. I think an actor has to get over that pretty early. So yeah, maybe 20 years ago when I first heard myself, I was like, ooh, that's not what I was expecting. But I think it's now 
they've married my internal voice that I think I have <laughs> and this one have now fused. Mm, okay. But your voice still distracts you? It sounds a bit strange to me. I'm not used to it. I mean, you know, I, mean, I give so many interviews, but I don't like to listen to myself afterwards. Yeah. Oh, it's so healthy of you. I don't know if it's healthy, but I mean. Could you add some adjectives to when you hear your own voice, what adjectives would we attach to how it sounds for you? It just sounds different than I'm used to kind of hearing myself. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of makes me much more self-conscious okay. about the way I talk. This is common. I don't want you to feel like you're an outlier. Okay. No one likes the sound of their voice for the most part. It's not that they don't like it. It's just, I don't sound like that. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's not me. <laughs> okay, so this may be a real comment on our different levels of egomaniacalness, <laughs> right? So I hear mine on this thing and I think, oh, I sound a little smarter than I'm afraid I am. Huh. Like, I feel like it ups my importance by mm. hearing it amplified or in this form. For me, really, it's just a kind of extra level of self-consciousness. Yes. That kind of a little distracts me from what I want to say, but it's fine. And <laughs> what quality do you most appreciate from your meditation work? Is it the dissolving of the ego, the self-consciousness, the self-awareness? It's strange because somebody just asked me yesterday at dinner about dissolving of the ego. I never got my ego dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> Still healthy. People talk about it, yeah. but maybe they don't really understand, or maybe they have different experiences in meditation than me. Yeah. But this is such a kind of extremely deep meditation. My purpose in meditation is basically just to get to know myself better, to understand how my mind works, how my body works. The more you understand yourself... It changes how you behave, how you think, but at least for me, it doesn't just dissolve the ego or who I am. What if we rephrased it? Like, do you find when you're in a kind of deep meditative state that the tethers by which you define your identity are severed a bit? Yes. I mean, what happens is that I become much more aware of the stories that my mind keeps generating about everything in the world, including or especially about myself. Yes. And most of the time, you just get caught up in the stories that the mind produces. We live our whole life trapped inside the stories that our mind creates. And in meditation, you get some kind of distance from it, and you see the process of how you create these stories and then fall victim to them. Yeah. And you can, in a way, just observe what's happening. This is not the truth. This is not the world. This is not me. This is just a story that my mind has created. And this kind of liberates you to some extent from these narratives. In my work as a historian, I basically try to do exactly the same thing. That just as individual humans get caught up in the stories they invent about themselves, this happens to entire nations, yeah. to entire religions, societies. They invent some fictional story, think it is the truth, and then start fighting all the other nations or whatever about this fantasy in their mind. Do you think it also frees up some capacity? Because I think the story in itself might not even be the problem. So I might say, I'm a victim of X, Y, or Z. Or I always have bad luck when I go. I can't find a parking spot. Whatever my observation about myself is. Yeah. That little moment, the kernels really doesn't take up much time. I never find good parking spots. Now... My day-to-day -day is spent confirming the story I created however many months ago mm. or years ago. That's the actual time suck of it, is confirming that the story I came up with a while ago is in fact true. 
So every time I pull up to a store and there's no spot, I file it in my database of proof that this story is correct. And of course, I can't even see the open parking spots because it's in opposition to the story mm. I want to believe in. So I almost feel like the story is a little benign. Just thinking it once, that's fine. Uh -huh. But when you think it again and again and again, then this changes again how you think, how you behave. And, you know, you mentioned like feeling that you're a victim. We see it on, on a global level that now in the world you have this kind of competition of victimhood yeah. when almost every group of people, some with better justification, some with much worse justification, tell their story as a story of victimhood, yeah. which I think is psychologically and also politically harmful and destructive. One of the reasons that attract people to narratives of victimhood is that it relieves you of responsibility. Mm. It relieves you of responsibility for the problems in your life or for the problem in the world. Like, I didn't cause this. I'm a victim of the system. And also relieves you of the responsibility to do something about it. You think even about climate change. So if you think that we are victims of the system, we didn't cause it, and it's not our job to fix it. And if everybody in the world thinks like that, then nobody takes responsibility. We're going to be wearing shorts in December. Yeah. <laughs> and some groups obviously have a good reason. But you see, even the most powerful countries in the world tell themselves this story of victimhood, like you see Russia telling itself that we are the victims. Everybody is against us. Everybody wants to invade us. So we must invade them. Yes. And this is just a fantasy in their minds or in the mind of just one person, just, you know, Putin. And you see how a fantasy, a fictional story that is generated in the mind of a person, if it gets repeated again and again and again and spreads, it can eventually cause millions to lose their homes and to flee and, you know, terrible tragedy. It transfers from an idea to like a law of physics. It's got a permanence. It's the mm -hmm. reality of the Russian experience. It's the yes. reality of, you name it, the experience. Yeah. I also think the competition for victimhood is ego as well, because it's all this bad stuff happened to me, but I'm still breathing or thriving or look how much I've accomplished despite They all want of both this things, stuff. like some heroicism yeah. and some victimhood. Yeah, that's a great observation. I was going to correlate it with narcissism as I understand it. So I know a narcissist, a therapist helped me understand this narcissist will never, ever, ever make an apology. Yeah. Like you can know that right now that don't ever have that expectation. They're incapable of apologizing. And this person who I've seen create enormous wreckage, even in the face of the proof, right? There's another layer, but I had no choice but to create that wreckage because of X, Y, and Z. So I do think the victimhood is pretty tightly related to narcissism as well. Absolutely. Again, coming back to the Putin example, the whole world knows that he had made a terrible, terrible mistake. Not just, you know, ethically in terms of the suffering he inflicted on millions of people, also just in cold political terms, he made one of the biggest errors of judgment in politics and in military affairs for generations. And he's incapable of saying, I made a mistake. Yes. He just blames it on others and demands even more power for himself. This is the basic danger with every dictatorship. You know, dictators, sometimes they make good decisions, so people follow them. But the problem is that nobody is perfect. Eventually they make a mistake and they are inherently incapable of admitting yes. that they made a mistake. And there is nobody else in the country. There is no free press. There is no opposition parties. There is nobody that can tell them, hey, you made a mistake. You need to move aside 
and let somebody else try something else. Yeah, you shit the bed on this one. Do you yeah. have that expression in Israel? <laughs> yeah, well, that's why my prediction for Putin is there'll be a suicide if he's not assassinated by an oligarch who cannot afford they to live. They never commit suicide. I mean, unless no, Hitler committed suicide. When the Russians were like five blocks away from his hiding place, I mean, they commit suicide only really when there is no other choice. I think there's a moment, I think this happened for Epstein, I think it's happened for a lot of these people, when the force field around them that fails to acknowledge that it's their fault, the moment it becomes obvious Oh, I'm out of moves, I'm out of stories. Next step is I will be publicly recognized. Death is a better option than that but for those people. But when that person has their finger on nuclear weapons, we don't want to be in, in that situation. I mean, because it can be not just suicide, it could be you kill everybody and commit suicide. Yeah. Yeah, like the... Murder, yes, suicide. Exactly, the horrible father who kills everyone. Exactly. Yes. Okay. I mean, like killing your children and then killing yourself. Yeah. Yes, Okay, but let's give a ray of hope because I agree with you that given the chance, that is maybe a route he would pursue. But my ray of hope there is we've had some trial runs of this. We had some guys on a nuclear submarine who basically didn't. They had all the reasons and were given the orders to go ahead and launch a nuclear weapon. I remain a little optimistic that people aren't going to follow that directive. I hope so, yeah. Because they themselves know that they, when they hit the button, they are killing themselves. And they're not Putin. They're not egomaniacal narcissists who can't, you know, I hope. Mm -hmm. Can we maybe have some optimism <laughs> that that is also on the table? Yeah, you know, I mean, so far we had nuclear weapons for like 70 years. Mm -hmm. And after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were never used again in conflict. Despite a couple of real close calls. Yeah, the danger is always there. And the optimistic thing that I can say is that the last few decades have been more peaceful than almost any other period in human history. Mm -hmm. Now, I come from the Middle East. I know perfectly well there are still conflicts around. But this idea that some people have, that there is a constant level of violence in the world, and no matter what we do, there is always the same amount of violence, this is just not true. And it's a dangerous thought yep. because it means that there is no point in making an effort. Yeah. And as a historian, one of the most important lessons of history is that there is no constant level of violence in the world. You know, when you go back to the Stone Age, and the book I just published is focused on the Stone Age, so th this is one of the main themes there, that actually people have all these, again, fantasies about the Stone Age, that everybody were these, I don't know, big hunters and warriors and went around all the time fighting. Actually... The first evidence we have, real evidence, not a fantasy in the mind, actual evidence for large-scale conflict between human beings is just from 13,000 years ago, 1-3, from a place in the Nile Valley, today in Sudan. We have evidence before that for hunting, of course, and also for individual people being killed by weapons, so maybe murder or something, but for actual conflict between groups, there is zero evidence. This is something that is very important to understand because lots of people have this idea that war is just part of human nature. And it isn't. It's a choice. So that sounds a little contradictory. I just think we should really point out what you're actually saying. So this pervasive notion that we're just a warring people and that there's a given percentage of folks who will suffer on planet Earth and starve on planet Earth, all these things, that's bullshit as compared to 300 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. Yeah. But then predating that is even an example of 
almost zero warfare. We are not sure if there was or wasn't. We just don't have evidence. No evidence. It doesn't prove that there was no war like right. 50,000 years ago. Anthropologists believe there's like tribal to tribals. There's stealing of women. There's small hundred-on-hundred conflicts probably happening, no? We have evidence from anthropology for this happening in the last few centuries or so, but we have no kind of smoking gun that somebody can point out, here is an archaeological site from 40,000 years ago, you have an entire band of hunter-gatherers being massacred. We don't have anything like that. So it's important to realize it because all these people who talk about human nature, you can't put it on nature. If you think that war is part of human nature, then in a way this excuses people like Putin. Putin is not to blame for this war, it's human nature. If it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. And if it's human nature and it's inevitable, then one should just win. Exactly. Yeah, you kind of have a moral compass for that. And we employ it. Like, well, there's going to be some conflict, so we had better win. Exactly. Yeah. You can only choose your only choice. Do you want to be the prey? Or the predator. Yes. And then everybody says, okay, if that's the choice, I'll be the predator. (laughs) But this is a false moral choice. There are always more options. Almost always, especially in politics, when people tell you, you have only two choices, they are tricking you. They are placing you in a false dilemma. Like Putin saying, well, there are just two choices. Either the Ukrainians do whatever I want, or I invade them. Right. And, and then when he invades them, he have this kind of spiel that it wasn't my fault. I mean, they refused my demands. What do you want from me? They are to blame. Yes, yeah. yes, And yes. this is just a wrong way of framing it. It's, you know, it's like the hostage situation with terrorists. You capture somebody and you say, okay, either you give me, I don't know, a billion dollars or I kill them. And then you don't give them the billion dollars and, and he kills them. And now you're a murderer. And now you're at fault. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I mean, yes, you yes. forced me to pull the trigger. <laughs> yeah. and, to, and it's not true. The fact that I did not give you a billion dollar did not force you to kill these people. It was still your choice. So we should never fall into this trap of allowing the terrorists or the warmongers or whatever to frame the situation in such a way that there are only two options and you chose this, so you're to blame for everything that happened. To transfer responsibility. Exactly. Yes, you don't watch TV, do you? I watch a lot of TV. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Have you watched the four-part documentary on HBO about the Iranian hostage Actually, we tend crisis? to watch kind of fiction. Oh, okay, Comedy. Uh, Rick and Morty, <laughs> oh, uh, Game of Thrones, okay. yes. these okay. kinds of things. Okay. I mean, documentary, most of what I do all day mm-hmm. is read history books. I hear you. So when I go in the evening with my husband to watch some TV, it probably won't be a documentary. I got you. You want an escape. You want total freedom from the day. Um, in a way. Okay, yeah. it's a great one, but it is crazy. You know, they had those hostages for 444 days. And the way the narrative just evolves and evolves and evolves until the point where, yes, you're in a position where we're killing these people. The Americans are killing these 60 people, not the captors of them. But us, yeah, there's a judo that happens in the framing of that situation that transfers responsibility entirely to the victim. And that is so dangerous. We should always resist it when people are trying with this trick of kind of blaming somebody else for what is actually their choice. You have in philosophy these kinds of trolley problems, you know? Oh, yes, 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 yes. I mean, there is a trolley. It's about to run over this one person, but you can push the switch and it will instead kill these other five people or whatever. I think it's the reverse of that. It is. It's heading towards five people. You can, yes, redirect it to one person. And the most important thing to know about the trolley problems, they almost never happen in real life. (laughs) That's the most important thing to realize 
about them. Yeah. Philosophers had to work very, very hard <laughs> to invent the trolley problems because there are no real trolley problems in real life. Whenever in real life somebody puts you this kind of choice, know that they are pulling you into a trap. Oh, this is great. And this is actually part of your book. So don't you think that one of our great gifts as homo sapiens is our ability to create both models and analogies? Like analogies are enormously effective. And then also we're the victim of analogies. Absolutely. This superpower, this ability to impose a fantasy on reality, and then people just don't see the reality. They just see the fantasy. I look at the conflict in my country, in Israel, between Jews and Arabs, and people think that, you know, it's just human nature, or not just human nature, it's just nature. I mean, you look at all these chimpanzees and wolves and lions, they all the time fight about territory, so we also fight about territory. And what people don't realize, they don't fight about territory. They fight about fantasies in their minds. Because, you know, the chimpanzees, when they fight about land, this is really an objective problem they have. There is not enough food. So they need to fight over these fruit trees because whoever loses them dies from starvation. Now, you look at the Middle East, you look at my country, there is enough land for everybody. There is enough food for everybody. There is no objective shortage of food. But they have conflicting stories in their minds. You have one group of people saying, God gave this place to me. And the other says, no, 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 God gave this place to us. And this is what they fight about. It's just in their mind. Biblical real estate claims are always hard to... (laughs) 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 Even when you get them in the court of law, boy, they're hard to... I mean, we talk about this a fair amount because we talk about how we have been tribal for so long. So we're wired to be tribal and we're wired to say you over there and me over here and us them and forgetting we can decide for that to not be true. That choice has evolved. We have a lot of choice there. Again, it's people equate, for instance, modern nations with ancient tribes. And this is a fundamental mistake because the thing about really ancient tribes like you go back to the Stone Age, the group of people is made of a very small number of people who actually know each other. The basis for the group is personal acquaintance. Like, I know you, I know your personality, we are maybe related, we went together to hunt a mammoth and you saved my life. The amazing thing about modern groups like big nations is that 99.99% of the people You never met them in your life. They are not your relatives. You don't know their personality. Even in a small country like Israel, we have like 9 million citizens. I know like 200 people. Yeah. So all these others, they are actually strangers to me. But the magic of nationalism and the good side of nationalism is that it makes me feel that these strangers that I never met in my life are nevertheless my friends and family in some way. So I care about them. So for instance, I pay my taxes so that some stranger on the other side of the country would get basic health care. Right. And this is the good side of nationalism. Sometimes, again, people twist it and think that nationalism is about hating other people. Right. I can avoid paying my taxes, but as long as I hate foreigners, I'm a great patriot. <laughs> yeah. Right. And this is a complete misunderstanding. You yeah. got some options, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So how do you define who are we? And what does it mean to be part of us? This is not nature. This is our choice. So I would say, yes, nations are very important, provided we define them in terms of love. Like, I love the other people in my nation, so I pay my taxes, so they are not dying from illnesses. And not defining them in terms of hate, 
I'm a great American patriot because I hate all these other groups. To prevent it from steering into zero sum. So I love these country men of mine and I want the best for them. Everyone else is a threat to that because there's zero sum resources. And it's not true yes, because not very true. often to take care of your country men and country women, you have to cooperate with foreigners. And benefit many other people who yeah. then in turn benefit you. Think about climate change. No country can solve climate change by itself. So if several countries cooperate on this, this is not being disloyal to your nation. This is not treason or something. You're actually trying to help the people in your nation by cooperating with these other nations. Similarly, if you have a pandemic, the best way to stop a pandemic is to cooperate in advance with other countries to share medical information, to share medical resources. If every country needs to do it by itself, it's much, much more difficult. Yeah, near impossible. Okay, your book is incredible. I love <laughs> it. I'm gonna immediately be rereading it with my kids. So just say I'm so excited by this book. But before that, mm -hmm. we had Jared Diamond on the other day. Ah, oh, yeah, he's great. Oh, what he's, a guy. And of course you came up guy. a lot. I think it's flattering to him that you cite him. Because he really was my model. I mean, I read his book and this is what made me realize, hey, you can actually write like that, like these big narratives about the whole of human history and still do it in a scientific and academic way. Yes, and also literary, like a, an appealing story story, not this discovery, then this discovery, and so on. Okay, so your book, Unstoppable Us, Volume 1, How Humans Took Over the World, is for children. Yeah. And I think it'd be fun to first find out why you decided that children need the message of sapiens. But I will say there's more in this book, weirdly, than just in sapiens. But in general, we could say it's doing what sapiens did, but for children. Yes. One of the great things I heard you say already is why it's easier to explain story, myth, money, nationalism to children than it is 50-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, because they haven't heard the story so many times before, so they come kind of much more fresh to it. Like you want to explain money to a 50-year-old, and, you know, your whole life sometimes revolves around money. It's very, very difficult to change what we already believe about it. And you come to 10-year-olds, and what is money? Money is basically a fairy tale for adults. It's not something objective in the world. Yeah. You know, you look at these pieces of paper, and most of the money today in the world is not even paper. It's just electronic data yeah. moving between computers. Yeah, you can't eat it, you can't drink it, you can't have sex with it. Nothing. What intrinsic value, right? It has no intrinsic value whatsoever. It has value just because some people come and tell stories about it, and everybody believes the stories, and it works. You know, 50,000 years ago, you had the tribal shaman tell you stories about spirits and ghosts, and everybody believed the story. Now we have these much more sophisticated storytellers. We have the lawyers, and we have the bankers, and they come and they tell us a story that this piece of paper is worth like 10 bananas. Uh -huh. And if everybody <laughs> believes the story, it works. I, I can actually go to the supermarket, uh -huh. give this colorful piece of paper to a stranger I never met before, and they give me bananas in exchange. Well, and think about how much world attention right now is being focused on this piece of paper is losing 6% of its value this year. Inflation is literally when people told you an inflated story. They told you it was worth 10 bananas. Ah, 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 it's actually worth just eight bananas. Yes, the story itself is under threat right now. And exactly. it's, it's every headline. 
because if we completely lose our faith in the story, the whole of society collapses. Yeah. It yeah. happened several times in history Ooh, when people just lost their faith in the currency of their country. You know, like in Germany in the 1920s. Oh, sure, sure. You have all these images of people going with entire sacks, wheelbarrows, with banknotes to buy a piece of bread. Yeah. This is what led eventually to the rise of Nazism, that a complete loss of faith. Those damn war reparations. Yeah. So explaining this to kids, that money is just people believe in ghosts and spirits, so it's the same thing for adults. The amazing thing about it, that it actually works. That as long as everybody believes in the story, you have the modern economy functioning. You don't have children, to my no. knowledge. No, no, no. If you are a parent, you get to experience this real time, which is it's almost impossible to talk to an adult that money's not real. I've had this debate when it comes up. Well, but it's not because it's blank X, Y, and Z. It's actually incredibly hard to explain to the kid that the piece of paper you hand the person at Target is worth all the merchandise <laughs> they just handed you, right? Like that's the hurdle. Yeah, exactly. It's almost impossible for a while. You're like, I know, I know. Well, this thing is worth all that stuff we just bought. Our stories are preposterous to kids and you get to see it real time. Santa Claus, right? We went down that road. I had experienced Christmas, seemed really fun. We started it and then right out of the gates with my daughter. Well, hold on. He goes to everyone's place and he comes on the chimney. What if you don't have a chimney? Like, okay, fuck. <laughs> now I got to account for all the apartments in LA. So mm. then I got to spin a lie, right? And then that didn't feel right to them. And it just goes on and on and on. And you realize the story is insane. It takes so much effort to get them on board with the story. After like the fifth lie, I was like, okay, I can't do this. You're right. That's the good part of your brain. This whole thing doesn't make sense. There's no Santa Claus. I'm doing it, but it's fun to think about it. <laughs> it was begatting too many other lies, right? But then you have the story that actually ran the world. It's yeah. not Santa Claus. It's things like corporations. I mean, you have all these books to kids about animals, like elephants and lions and whales, which are very important. But, you know, kids don't go in the street and meet an elephant most of the day. <laughs> but they meet corporations every day. Yeah. Like every day they meet Google. Google and Facebook and TikTok and they meet McDonald's and Disney and so forth. And they need to understand what are these things and how to beware of them, how to make friends with them sometimes, but how to be careful about them because these are dangerous things corporations could be. So this is part of the rationale of the book. It's not just about the Stone Age. It's also about things like explaining what is a corporation to kids, which again goes back to the issues that we talked about earlier of responsibility, like corporations are the way for adults sometimes to avoid responsibility. Who is polluting the atmosphere? It's not me, it's the corporation yeah. that is doing yeah. it. So don't talk to me, talk to the lawyers that represent the corporation. Now imagine a kid trying to do the same thing, like he or she walks into the living room with muddy shoes, all over the floor. And when the parent comes and says, hey, who left all these muddy footprints on the floor? And the kid goes, it wasn't me. It was the corporation. Just talk <laughs> with my lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I'm so excited to read to my kids is you're doing the thing that I think is most important, which is it's really easy for us to just take what we're given, the burden we inherit, as intrinsic, as given, as unavoidable, as the way it is, period. And I think your book, and if I can just read something you said, the world in which we live didn't have to be the way it is. People made it what it is, and people can change it. Like just starting the premise with, hey, this just happens to be where we find ourselves, and there's a total explanation for it. And then in understanding it, we might also decide where we want to go. I know, I look at now at images coming from Iran. So you have these teenage girls 
that have been told all their life, you must wear the hijab and you must do this and you must do that. And they come and say, why? Yeah. Like, okay, so this is how you uh, behaved in the last 30 or 40 years, but I don't want to do it. That's the kind of magic. That that moment when you realize, yes, this is the world we now live in, but it doesn't have to be like that. We reached this point because of some previous events and choices that people made, but we can now make different choices. Yeah. Yeah. So basically you start with saying, hey, check this out. We humans, this species, took over the entire world. So how did that happen? And then you start from the very beginning. We start six million years ago when the common relative existed. And then we pick up at two and a half million years ago with the first hominid. And then you just start painting a picture for kids. Yeah, how it's like to live in the Stone Age, that you don't go to school. Instead, you go to the forest, you learn to climb trees, you learn how to find fruits and mushrooms and fish and so forth. If you're a kid today and you sometimes feel like, hey, I don't want to go to school. I want to go to the forest and climb trees. This is actually a memory. Part of your body, part of your mind kind of remembers how it was 100,000 years ago and misses it. So it's the same thing like when I was a kid, I would wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, afraid that there is a monster under the bed and I would call my mom. This is also actually a historical memory because when we lived in the forest, there were actually monsters in the night that came to eat children. So a lion would come or a cheetah would come and if you go on sleeping, they eat you. And if you wake up frightened and call your mom, mom, there is a lion (laughs) under the bed, then maybe you're saved. Yeah, and I think too, We're born into a world we have total mastery over, so we sometimes forget how completely vulnerable we are in the real world. And you do a great job of laying it out for the little kids in that in the Stone Age, we can't run fast, we're not strong, we don't have huge canines, we don't have claws. We have to run from everything. And if we want to enjoy any of the carcass of the giraffe that's been killed by the lion, what's going to have to happen? We're last ones in. We're in the last in the queue. The first humans, they were so weak, they couldn't kill a giraffe. It's such a huge animal. But maybe a lion kills a giraffe and you wait (laughs) on the sidelines, waiting for the lion to finish and go away. And he looks full. I think we're almost (laughs) up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But even then, you can't go. You can't come to the carcass because there are other animals in front of you in the line. Like you have the hyenas. And then you don't want to mess with the hyenas. (laughs) If you've ever seen a hyena on television or in a zoo, this is not the kind of animal that as a human being you want to mess with. You always see them relative to lions. They don't do any shows about just hyenas, right? We only care about them in relation (laughs) to lions. Because they they often hang together because, you know, the hyenas are smart. I mean, they say, why should we go to the effort of actually bringing down a giraffe? Dangerous and difficult. We let the lion do it and then we come. Okay, so in real life, hyenas are fucking enormous. They're yes. 180 pounds. We don't have dogs that big. A no. mastiff is 140. <laughs> These things are like the most enormous mastiff you've ever seen. We see them in real life, you go, oh my God, when they're not sitting next yeah. to a lion, they're terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so again, if you go back hundreds of thousands of years and you have a lion killing a giraffe, you wait in line. And the hyenas come ahead of you and maybe the jackals come ahead of you and you come last. And when the first humans, they come to the carcass, nothing is left. All the meat has been eaten. So then comes the first big invention in human history, these stone knives. People imagine that they were used to hunt big animals. 
they weren't used to hunt big animals. The first stone tools, they are used to crack open bones. Basically, it's the only thing left after all the other animals had their feel. So you have these weak humans kind of sneaking to the carcass, <laughs> looking around carefully. Maybe one hyena is still there. No, okay, it's safe. And then there is a bone, and you take your stone knife, and you crack open the bone, and you eat the marrow. Wow. Boom, 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 marrow. I know that. <laughs> and, and that's our kind of first claim to fame. Wow. Right. That sets us on a road a little bit. Yeah, this sets us on the road eventually to the atom bomb. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. A couple steps later. <laughs> a couple of steps later, boom. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Canva. Good presentations take time. Or they used to, because now you have Canva to help you make amazing slides. Fast. I'm talking like seconds, thanks to the power of AI in Canva presentations. All you have to do is start with a prompt like a sales presentation for a tech company, then sit back and let Canva work its magic. It's incredible what AI is doing. I'm seeing all kinds of image generated. I follow I these architectural websites that it's all AI generated. It's just mind blowing what it comes up with. You just tell it what you want and it'll do it. Boom, it's a time saver and it's easy for any department to use. And it's great for companies of any size. Even Fortune 500 companies rely on Canva. Finish your work faster and generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. We are supported by Celebrity Cruises. I know what you think, as long as you're on vacation, you're happy. But the truth is some vacations are better than others. And there's one that's better than all of them, Celebrity Cruises. With rooms, food, and service like theirs, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And you won't have to with all the places Celebrity goes. They even have weekend Caribbean escapes if you're short on time. So visit Celebrity.com, contact your travel advisor, or call 1-800-CELEBRITY and see why nothing comes close to Celebrity Cruises. Ships Registry, Malta, and Ecuador. We are supported by Vital Farms. And guess what, Monica? I'm back. You're back in the egg game. I am in the egg game. Horde. Mm -hmm. I love eggs. I love Vital Farms. I, I buy Vital Farms before, during, and after they've sponsored us. Yes, they're truly the best tasting eggs. No matter how you like your eggs, scrambled over easy or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit. Free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. They're so fresh. Mm. Those yolks are so orange. Yeah, they really are. You feel like you're getting quality product. Absolutely. Trusted brand. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. The next big thing is fire. The power of every other animal depends on its body, how big you are, how fast you can run, your wings, whatever. And fire is the first time that an animal, a human being, managed to gain control of a source of power outside its body. Uh -huh. You know, if I'm a human being and I know how to control fire, even though I'm not as big as a lion, I can't run like a cheetah, I don't have clothes, I don't have poison like a snake, whatever. I have this friend, fire, 
And a single human with a fire stick can burn down an entire forest yes. with all the lions and hyenas and giraffes in it. And you point out all animals are terrified of fire. Such a powerful force. And again, humans, what was amazing about them, they learned how to befriend fire. So how did it happen? We don't know for sure. But again, something that still happens today, lots of people, lots of kids, they like watching fire. Yeah, When I mean, Did it ever it. happen to you? We like, loved love it. Fire. He I'm is a, a pyromaniac. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you sit like you go outside, you light a fire with some wood and whatever, and you just sit there and you watch the fire. Stare Talk about it. magic you can observe. I understand the chemical reaction. Doesn't fucking matter. I'm looking <laughs> at flames. They're like, what are those things? Yeah, Why are they dancing? Who's controlling it? What is that thing? But the thing is, you're not afraid of it. No. You're yeah. fascinated by it. No, you don't want to this, again, this is a memory from like hundreds of thousands wow. of years ago. Then you have, I don't know, a lightning strikes a tree and there is a fire. All the other animals run away except humans. The hillbillies. Yeah. We come in. We come in. <laughs> we what come in. Hey, hey, look at this. Exactly. And we sit and watch this thing. Yeah. And this is how we learn to befriend it. For instance, we learn, hey, you can take a stick, place it inside the kind of flaming tree, one side of the stick is burning, but you can hold on to the other side and you take it away and you now have fire on the stick. Yeah. And you can now use this stick fire to drive away the lions and the hyenas or to <sighs> burn down forests. Think about it. It's a lightsaber. Like well, we take it for then, granted. It yeah. is like the ultimate weapon well, if you're defenseless. And then a couple of steps later, we have AK-47s. Yes. That's yeah. where that comes from. And there is another connection there because one thing that fire did was transform our brain, actually, so we could invent things like AK-47s. Yeah. Because before fire, much of the energy of the human body it went to digesting food. Uh -huh. Like you eat raw food and you have to the spend... The marrow. Yeah, the marrow <laughs> and the fruits and whatever. And you have to spend a lot of time chewing it and then a lot of time digesting it. The great thing he points out to the children reading the book is next time someone in your house is cutting up a potato to prepare in the oven, ask for a little bite of it or a lick first. Mm. It opened up an entirely different world of things we could even consume. There's so many things we can't actually eat unless they're cooked. Absolutely. Right. And also, again, it takes much less time, much less effort, because it's like outsourcing. Like we today outsource, I don't know, production to another country. So fire is like outsourcing the difficult job of digesting food from our stomach to an outside fireplace. Yeah. And then this saves so much energy. And where does this energy go? To the brain. Boom. So The stomach gets smaller, who, the brain gets Who big. figured it out, though, that if I put some food near the fire, this is crazy. I've heard theories. Go ahead, hit me with a theory. We don't know for sure, but it's probably trial and error. Like, you burn the forest, yeah. and there is a charcoal giraffe there. And fuck, is it delicious. And, yeah, and, and you come close and you say, well, you know, it's been burned, but maybe I can still find something there to eat. Yeah. And you try, and it's good, it's nice. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, so what a revolution. By the way, these are such simple things, and there's these beautiful illustrations throughout the book by Richard Ruiz. Mm -hmm. Oh, side note, total sidebar. Do you know Noah is the number one most popular name right now in America for children? We learned it two oh, weeks we ago. Did. What do you think of that? I think it's scary because my connotation is the flood is coming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of Noahs. We need a lot of Noahs. Uh, so the flood of, is coming. A lot of boat builders. <laughs> yeah, but there's these beautiful illustrations. They're really reminiscent of the books I read when I was a kid. And in fact, your life was really, really altered by a book you read when you were a little kid that is of this nature called called The History of Mankind or Humankind. What was it? 
Yeah, it was a big book with lots of pictures about the history of humankind for children. I still have it. It has my first kind of attempt to write because I try to copy some part of the book and it's all kind of messed up, but it's, it's there. <laughs> you encourage kids to write all over this book. If, they if the it. book is yours, oh. definitely write on it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I mean, that. I think it's engagement. If it belongs to the library, then don't. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but if it's your book and you want to write on it, yes. Yeah. Right, so what was the approach of that book? I mean, the amazing thing about it, it was scientific. I grew up again in Israel, and even though I come from a secular family, so still, it's, religion is everywhere. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you go to school or you go even to Christian Garden and you have all these stories about Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and Noah's flood. And this is where we came from. And then I got this book. There was no Adam and Eve and no Garden of Eden. Instead, there were Neanderthals and there was the Stone Age and there was human evolution, and it kind of blew my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Great. So what I think is cool about this book is it takes that, which I too received that. I had the great National Geographic books my grandma got me. But then there's no weaving of that scientific background of our evolution into the outcomes of these abilities we had or how they transformed and became our culture. That part to me was missing of those books. It didn't connect my present to the past. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this book does a great job of. So we just blew Monica's mind with fire. That was 1.5 <laughs> million years ago, right? And then we go to you letting our children know, which is good, it's ego bursting. So, hey, just like there's a lot of different bears and there's bears all over the planet and they're all different species, guess what? There were a bunch of different humans at one time all over the planet. This one that you're talking about discovering fire obviously isn't ultimately Homo sapien sapien. Yeah, it's this an earlier species. Australopithecine afarensis or whatever. And then it evolves... And at one time, we have a bunch of different hominids. Yeah, at least five or six. Okay. Wow. One blue... At the same time. At the same time. Now we have different bears in the world. You have grizzly bears and polar bears and black bears and whatever. So one time, there are different human species. Even in the same place. You can go to the same place. In one cave, there are Homo sapiens. In another cave, you find remains of Neanderthals or Homo Denisova. Wow. That, to me, is a very exciting moment. I pause the book. I would love to meet... Is it Flores? Floresians, it's the little people. Okay, tell Monica about the floras. <laughs> I want to hang out with these so bad. So there is an island in Indonesia called Flores, and humans managed to get there about a million years ago when the sea level was much lower than it is today, so they could basically walk, and then the sea rose again, and they got stuck on the island. It was a small island, not much to eat. So what very often happens on islands, on small islands, to many animals, not just humans, over time, they become smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. Foster's Island principle. Yep. Mm -hmm. Birds get bigger, mammals get smaller. Exactly. Insects and birds, they become huge. Yeah. Yeah. And mammals, they become small. So on the Flores, you had not just humans, also elephants becoming very small elephants. Oh. And, Pygmy uh, elephants. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and the small humans would hunt the small elephants. <laughs> How adorable. And, and everyone's just this big. The people were three feet tall, you say, right? No, I don't know any American measurements. One a meter, meter tall. <laughs> yeah, a meter tall. Yeah. 25 ah. kilos, more or less. But oh, they, they had two. 54 pounds and oh. three feet tall with spears. With spears and oh. fire and everything. Wow. And, <laughs> And how big are it. the elephants? The elephant, I'm not sure. But oh, there's these like, like, like cows. Small ele yeah, like, like. Well, the pygmy woolly mammoths on the Channel Islands, they're the size of like cows. Yes. But so with yeah. the tusks and the whole thing. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. So there were those. 
And then you had Neanderthals in much of Europe and West Asia. The small people from Flores, we cannot meet them any longer because it seems that Homo sapiens, when they reached the island, they decimated the whole of, all of them. Uh, Big size advantage. Either directly killing them or taking away the food. Uh-huh. And this is what happened to most of the other human species on the planet. Our species probably drove most of them to extinction. Did we just take up all the resources or did we actively murder them or some combination? Of probably some combination. We are not sure. Again, we don't have enough evidence. But we do know that you see a very clear pattern. A hundred thousand years ago, you have something like five or six human species in different parts of the world. Our species, Homo sapiens, uh, lived in Africa at that time. And then Homo sapiens comes out of Africa. And every time our ancestors reach a certain part of the world, the local population of other humans disappears. So you conclude whatever you want from from that. But that's the very clear pattern. To some extent, though, they do not completely disappear. There is some level of interbreeding with Homo sapiens. Almost all of us are partly Neanderthal. Like between 1% and 3% of our genes. I have a low percentage. He was upset about it. I really wanted a high percentage. And what's your percentage? It's minuscule. But they mm. have bigger brains. From 23 and me. Mm. Yeah. That's very, <laughs> I, was, I was like, fingers crossed, I was hugely Neanderthal and I just wasn't. But just imagine the scene that, you know, 50,000 years ago, you have some kid whose mother is a homo sapiens and whose father is Neanderthal. Talk about mixed marriages. Yeah, exactly. Black, white is nothing. Yeah, it's nothing. I mean, yeah. these are basically two animals from different species. It's like species. a bear and a donkey. Yeah. <laughs> And we are all the offspring, we are all the descendants of these kinds of unions. Wow. Oh, my God. It's incredible. The thing that blew my mind about the Flores thing and actually became encouraging the Flores dwarves of Indonesia, I graduated in 2000. We didn't know about that. Yeah, it's completely new. Last 10 years. Wow. We found out 10 years ago that there were three foot tall, 55 pound little (laughs) spear carrying mini elephant hunters. That's my ancestor. You, <laughs> you so might have a high percentage of Flores. Yeah. They're fierce. Yeah. What's so exciting about that to me is, wow, 10 years ago, we thought we knew. Actually, they just two years ago probably discovered another new old species of small humans we didn't know about in an island in the Philippines. Oh. Wow. And just like a month ago, they gave the Nobel Prize in medicine to Svante Pabo, who was the pioneer of this entire field. Because how do we know all that? Not just from the bones, from being able to extract DNA Mm. from the bones and learn that it's amazing. You can find out what was the DNA of somebody who lived 50,000 years ago. This is how you know that this is this species and this is another species and so forth. So, you know, we started with taking marrow out of bones like a million years ago. And now we can take DNA out of ancient bones and learn, you know, that there was a family with a Neanderthal father and a, a sapiens mother 50,000 years ago. Yeah, you might find ago. both bones in the same site and know that they were living at the same time in the same group. Yeah, but to know that they actually had a kid together, you need yeah. DNA. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you don't right. find the skeletons in the right position, you probably don't know if they were like a couple, if they were enemies, if they just visited the same cave like a month apart from each other. But when you have the DNA, you know they actually had kids together. Yeah. And what can we attribute the human advancement to? Nutrition? 
for the most part. That's the thrust of his book. What is our superpower? Well, our superpower, nutrition is part of it because it allowed our brains to grow. But ultimately, our superpower is our ability to cooperate in very large numbers because this is what really makes us more powerful than any other animal. And underlying this... It's the ability to invent and believe fictional stories like about money. Today, we have 8 billion people cooperating in a trade network that we get our food, our clothes, whatever, from the other side of the world thanks to money. It's also the main incentive to not go to war with everyone else. Like, it's such a powerful thing. that yeah. it's, it's really preventing Russia thus far is the only one that doesn't seem to give a shit about that. I mean, it's very powerful. But that's the great question and he teases it out like it's a mystery to the kids. Mm. Why did we displace all these other hominids? Why were mm -hmm. we victorious? And then now he introduces the central theme of sapiens, which is that ability to share a fairy tale yeah. or a myth. Yeah, I mean, if you think about Neanderthals, they were a bit bigger than us, probably even had bigger brains than us. On the individual level, they are at least as smart as us. But Neanderthals can cooperate only in small groups of, say, 50 Neanderthals. Homo sapiens has this superpower ability to cooperate in hundreds and thousands. So if it's one sapiens versus one Neanderthal, you know, the Neanderthal has a very good chance. If it's 500 sapiens against 50 Neanderthals, the Neanderthals have no chance. Mm -hmm. We're the little people in Gulliver's Travel. You remember that? I the mean, little really? Tiny yeah. little rope down Gulliver? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's true. And <laughs> it, uh, of course, I mean, cooperation is not just about conflict. I mean, if you cooperate with 500 other people, it means that if somebody in a different band discovers a new herb that helps to heal wounds, you also hear about it. If you have drought in your territory and there is nothing to eat, so you can move to the territory of a different band and because you all believe in the same guardian spirits or whatever, they will accept you as their kin or as their friends. And Neanderthals don't have that. You can also compartmentalize labor. So there might be something you forage that actually requires so much time to process before you can consume it. That would otherwise be unconsumable unless you have a dedicated group that's just processing this thing that's getting collected. One band may be living next to a river and they fish salmon and they, I don't know, dry the salmon and then they exchange it with another group that lives inland. These are the kinds of things that made our species much more powerful than not only any other animal, but also any other human species. And this is still what makes us very powerful. If you think about any big human achievement, like flying to the moon, it's not the achievement of a single individual. Yeah, Neil Armstrong. Yeah, get all by himself, yeah. go to the moon. No, <laughs> I'm going to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have basically hundreds of thousands of people working to build the spaceship and to prepare the spacesuits. And, you know, even the people who clean the lavatories, they are doing something very important. Otherwise, they all will all die of dysentery before they get to space. There's a whole industry that's going to create the fuel that it'll exactly. burn. It's separate from space exploration. All these different aggregates of technology and workforces coming I mean, together. It's basically community. That's the cheesy way of saying it, yeah. I guess. It's like friendship and community is the reason. Absolutely. This is our superpower. And again, the question is, why are we able to build these huge, huge communities that nobody else can? And the answer, surprisingly, is fictional stories. Yeah. And underlying every big community, you always have some fictional story. So it's very clear in the case of religion with mythology. But it's also clear in the case of modern economic systems with things like money and corporations, which are also just fictional stories invented by lawyers and bankers. And again, if everybody believes in it, it works. Yeah.
Okay, another magic trick of the book is it now weaves in Monica all these incredibly <laughs> complex. I'm telling it to you because he. I know. Knows. I feel weird. You don't like me in the audience. No, I love it. Uh, okay, <laughs> it weaves in these other concepts that are almost impossible to explain to children, or at least I think most parents are nervous to do. So as we're moving through this story of us starting two and a half million years ago, he uses Flores as we kind of just touched on, to introduce what evolution is. So there's limited food on this island. The tinier members of the family are more likely to live because they need less food. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The yep. tinier members then have children. The tiniest members of those children will have the biggest chance of also having children. And he lays out evolution for you. Wow. And then in learning of how we know these other hominids were different species, he introduces DNA. So he explains... DNA to your children, all in an incredibly digestible, simple, holistic view that I think is so thrilling. TBD, to be determined. I do believe after I read this book to my daughters tonight, mm. or begin it tonight, <laughs> they're going to walk away with like 80 of the concepts that took me going to college to actually understand. That's the understand. problem. In school, it's so insular. It's like you learn biology here, and then over there you're learning history. It's so hard to see the big picture and how this connects to that, exactly. which is what you're doing. You cannot make sense of history without biology. Right. Because humans are animals. The most basic thing to know about humans is that we are animals. And, you know, it sounds so banal, but then you have so many people that they just deny it. No, we are not animals. Yeah. We are something completely different. But you can't understand our emotions emotions, our urges, our politics, if you don't accept this, you know, very simple thing that we are animals. And he also compares it to the rest of the world, which I do think children are quite familiar with. As you said, kids know about animals. I mean, that's 80% yeah. of the content is kids watching stuff on animals. And so you point out, not only is it unique that we can congregate in groups of hundreds and thousands, unique among hominids, no other animals on the whole planet can do it other than these social insects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's us and the ants. And the big difference between us and the ants, the ants are kind of stuck in just one way of cooperating, of building an ant colony with the queen and the division of labor within the ant population. They can't change their society overnight. It takes basically thousands of generations of evolution for ants to change their society, they can't have a democratic revolution. Hey, let's cut off the head of the queen, <laughs> of the queen ant, yeah. and let's have a republic of ants. They just can't do it. Humans, we can not, not just cooperate in very large numbers, we can change the way we cooperate extremely quickly just by changing the story in which we believe. So one moment we think, hey, we must have a king or a queen because God said that this person should rule over us and we live in a monarchy. And then you have the American Revolution or you have the French Revolution and people say, no, we don't want this story any longer. We now have a different story that we the people will decide who is going to be president and we rebel against the king of England and we have a completely different system. And again, the amazing thing about the system that is created, that it takes into account the ability to keep changing it. So, you know, you have the US Constitution, and today it's very common, I think rightfully, to point out all the problems that were originally in the US Constitution that, for instance, endorsed slavery, and that many of the people who wrote it, they had slaves. They talk about freedom, they have slaves. But the one really important thing that we should acknowledge is that into the Constitution, 
they built a mechanism to change it. Yes. That's and all. that's the amazing thing because this was so rare before in human history. Previously in human history, people felt that, you know, you have the Ten Commandments, it came from God, you can't change it. Right. There's an arrogance to think whatever discovery you've just made is the final world. Is that yeah. we got it. Yes. We all want to like just clean our hands. We did it. Our Constitution has slowly transferred into the Bible, and it really frustrates me. I think a lot of Americans think because it was so revolutionary and it was so profound and it is so powerful and wonderful and has created a society that was unimaginable 300 years ago, because of all those things, it's perfect. It shouldn't be meddled with. And then they ignore the fact that it was designed to be meddled with. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing about it, because the Ten Commandments have no way. The Constitution starts with we the people. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord, your God. It's not coming from the people, it's coming from God, and therefore you cannot change it. And you know, the Ten Commandments, just like the US Constitution, also endorse slavery. Look up commandment number 10. It says you should not covet your neighbor's field or house or slaves. Sure. Uh -huh. Which implies that it's perfectly okay with God to have slaves, yes. so long as you don't covet <laughs> yes. the slaves of somebody else. Yeah. Get your own fucking slaves. Exactly. God doesn't want you coveting or stealing other people's slaves. And the thing is, the U.S. Constitution has been amended less than a century after it was first written down. The Ten Commandments have never been amended. I mean, you don't have, okay, okay, now we got it. It's bad to have slaves. Okay, we will rewrite the Ten Commandments and change. The no, you can't do that. Yeah, there's yeah. no 11th commandment that said if two-thirds of you agree <laughs> the 10 sucks, you can get rid of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Did they set the bar a little too high, do you think? In our constitution, I'm sure you know enough about it to ask that question. <sighs> You're too afraid of that question. No, I don't have the expertise. I'm not Wait, an you expert need on to change it. Yeah, yeah, like ours is really, really hard to change, which is in some way great and in some way against the nature of the document. You need to find a middle path. If it's too easy to change it, and whenever one party is in power, it immediately exactly. writes the whole constitution. Yeah. You need something deeper than the kind of usual laws that you pass. If it becomes impossible to change it then okay, you need to stay away from that stream also because the whole magic of the constitution is that it acknowledges its own limitations. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about narcissism mm -hmm. and the inability of dictators to ever acknowledge a mistake. The amazing thing about the founding fathers is that they had this kind of understanding that, okay, we think it should be like this, but we could be mistaken about it. Yeah. So let's give our descendants a mechanism to do better than us. Yeah. The other irony is so much of this is just a kind of pervasive lack of humility because when people shed a story, the previous story now becomes absolutely absurd and preposterous, <laughs> right? Like when I get into arguments with people about a belief in their one God, I don't try to defeat their opinion of that. But in helping them understand how I view their view of God, I simply ask, what do you think about Zeus in Mount Olympus? Like when you think about the Greeks yeah. believing in Zeus and Mount Olympus, it sounds really comical to you, right? <laughs> Just know they're the same to me because I'm outside of both of the stories. So when we leave one, when we transition and we discard a story, all of a sudden in the light of day, it's almost objective truth gets really clear. Similarly, 
Monarchy was a given. Five minutes after we have a democracy, it seems insane. Wait, God appointed this family, only their kids, no matter how fucking <laughs> ill-equipped they are, they should rule above the smartest folks on the land? It's insane. I think we should all have the humility to go, we're also in a story that will change, that will seem absolutely preposterous. Yeah, we still need these kinds of stories, otherwise we don't have a society. But the good stories are the ones that acknowledge their own limitations and have, again, this mechanism to change the story later on. It's like we want the scientific method infused in our storytelling almost. It can be done. Again, the U.S. Constitution is a perfect example of how it's done. A story that acknowledges its own potential limitations and gives you the ability to rewrite it yeah. over time. Of course, you know, also the religious stories, they get reinterpreted mm -hmm. over time, but it's much, much more difficult and more limited. So because you can't change the text, so the trick is to interpret the text in a new way, but you don't really acknowledge that. You say, no, this is what it always meant. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. They just misunderstood. Now, no religion would survive if it could not adapt. Christianity today is a completely different religion than Christianity a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago. So it does change, but the change is much, much more slow and difficult and often violent because it doesn't have this built-in mechanism to acknowledge past mistakes and try something better. Okay, so can you identify the Achilles in our thinking? So the great gift is that we can buy into it. But then also we know that our stories tend to follow a very predictable pattern. There's only a few different stories. Absolutely. There's some vestigial Achilles tendon. I'm referencing one now. There's a segment of America that think the founding fathers were divine. Like the founding fathers. <laughs> it's like, no, they were human dudes who had fucked up lives and they were pretty brilliant or they were good writers. They weren't elevated above any. So what's the backside of the coin that we need to at all times be really aware of? Oh, I bet we're steering into the trap. It happened the same thing with Christianity. I mean, we don't know much about Jesus as a person, but from the little we know, for instance, from the stories preserved in the New Testament, he never claimed to be God. He was basically this kind of hippie guru in this small province of the Roman Empire. Sexy carpenter. <laughs> who <laughs> wanted hair. to reform Judaism and basically tell people be nicer to each other. After he died, his followers weaved these more and more elaborate stories about who he really was yeah. until thought. eventually... Some of them began claiming that he was God. For Jesus himself and his first followers, this would have sounded utterly preposterous and blasphemous. Yeah. Yes. To claim that I'm God? Because he was Jewish. He yeah, did not think he exactly. was he Yahweh. Was Jewish. Am I allowed to say that? He would, did yeah. not think he was Yahweh. He never says it. In line, you have a lot of, you know, previous prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah coming to the people, telling them you should behave better. And he's doing the same thing. During his time, we have evidence of a lot of other leaders in Judaism that try to reform Judaism in different ways. And this is basically what he's also saying. And the people around him, this is what they hear. But then decades and generations after he he's dead and he's not there to be able to object, you have people say, no, this rabbi, this guru, who had a small following and was eventually crucified by the hated Romans, he was actually 
the God that created the whole of the universe. That's so crazy. We just learned of this, that really Paul wrote down all the stuff. And Paul had never met Jesus. He never met him. He wasn't even a contemporary of him. And that not one human that surrounded Jesus was literate. So none of them wrote it down. Paul was the one who created the brand. Yes. Yes. You have Elvis and you have his manager. That was my exact exact same thing. I'm like, oh, he was Colonel Parker. Exactly. And then you have to ask yourself, who's the real power? Is it Jesus, the symbol, or is it the story Paul created? I'd argue it's probably the story. story. Absolutely. So maybe Paul's the most significant. A lot of scholars who research Christianity, they would definitely agree with you that the person who created Christianity is not Jesus, it's Paul. Yes, Oh my God, it's wild. And we don't know about Paul. I don't even know his last name. Uh, Saint. Stay tuned for more Armchair Expert, if you dare. We are supported by Men's Warehouse. When you wear a tailored men's warehouse outfit, it makes you feel confident, like you can do anything. Whether it's a snappy suit that makes you want to dance at a wedding like no one is watching, or a smart casual outfit that gives you the confidence to nail a job interview. Yep, you should give Men's Warehouse a shot, and here's why. Men's Warehouse is the only nationwide men's clothing store that has a tailor in every store to fit your suit, shirt, jeans, etc. to your bod. Men's Warehouse features clothes from the best brands in the fashion world like Vera Wang, Kenneth Cole, and Calvin Klein. Men's Warehouse isn't just suits. They have jeans, t-shirts, shoes, hats, and even underwear. The tailoring is game-changing. It really makes a huge difference in people's outfits if it's tailored to your body. You could have a billion dollar suit and if it doesn't fit it looks terrible. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's key. Men's Warehouse is everywhere with 600 plus locations nationwide so if you need one, and you will, there's one near you. Feel like you can do anything in an outfit from Men's Warehouse. Visit your Men's Warehouse store or click or tap to shop online. We are supported by Wayfair. Home should be your happy place, a space where you can relax and just enjoy yourself, whatever that looks like for you. Whether you want the ultimate man cave, a cozy Victorian-inspired nook for reading, an area for family movie night filled with all things retro or something else. And if you need help creating that space, I recommend Wayfair. It's the place to shop for everything home, from sofas to dining tables, beds, rugs, wall art, and more. I bought a KitchenAid... Mixer? Mixer on Wayfair. You can really get anything on there. And I'm helping a friend redo his living room. And we just... You're just on Wayfair nonstop. Yep. Yeah, it's one-stop shop. It is. They have fast, free shipping. They have everything you need for your home inside and out. They have a huge selection of home goods and a variety of styles. Whatever you're into, Wayfair is the go-to destination to help bring your vision to life. Every style is welcome in the Waberhood. Visit Wayfair.com or get the Wayfair mobile app. That's W-A-Y-F-A-I-R.com. Wayfair. Every style, every home. (laughs) 
how can Jesus have created the universe if he lived in the universe? Don't worry about oh. that. No, I don't. I don't <laughs> what is the rationale because, behind that? Because Jesus is God. There's a holy trinity. They're all one thing. There's the Holy Spirit, there's God and his son. But they're all one thing. Hmm. So God was here, and then he said, fuck, they're all off kilter. I'm going to send my own son down there to lead them out of this quagmire. And then I'm going to let them die for their sins. But he just ascended back to heaven and... I guess, reconfigured with his one self. I mean, in contemporary terms, he's a-binary. Okay. He always gender fluid. Okay. Like, he's, he's, every, he's both. Is he human? Yeah. Is he divine? No. Yeah. He's human fluid. Wow. Uh, he can be both at the same I'd time. I'd love to party with him, man. Everything's on the table. Wow. Okay. All right. It's not a good explanation, but I'll take I mean, it. No, I mean, the, the Trinity is one of the most complex theological and philosophical ideas that humans ever came up with. Yeah. And the vast majority of Christians don't really understand it either. Yeah. This yeah. is why you have this profession of theologians who spend their entire life just trying to get it exactly right. Yeah. What is the relation between God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit and all that? Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite meme I've ever seen? I've sent it to a million people. It's a drawing of Jesus praying, and he said, God, it's me, you. crazy okay this was incredible i cannot speak highly enough about this book i think it's the greatest way to get into a lot of really complicated topics concepts through picture through really artful storytelling it's fun it's a page turner it's a mystery it's a great holistic explanation of how they got to their bedroom where they're hearing this book it's i think in very empowering like okay this is how it happened and for all these reasons the sky's the limit on where it could go i'm grateful for it while i have you You've already given us so much time. God, every time I talk to you, it's a different experience with time. It travels differently. It's relative. Okay, I just want to check in on this. You have for, I don't know, 10 years now. When did you write Homo Deus? I wrote it in 2014, 15. It was published in 2016. Okay, so maybe for eight years, you've been kind of sounding an alarm, a little bit of a whistleblower, like, hey, let's be cognizant of where this story is heading. Yeah. One aspect of it is we're going to start to integrate a lot of technology into ourselves as a species. Biomechanically, we're going to engineer some embryos. We're really going to start tinkering with ourselves as a species. We're also going to be using AI to augment our own experience and intelligence. And you've been great at giving us some theoretical outcomes of all that and why we need to be very cautious. Yeah, it's extremely dangerous, these developments. So what I'm curious about is what has happened since you first started sounding that alarm? I want to know some concrete things that's either confirmed kind of what your fear was and or redirected what your fear is. What's happened recently that we could look at? One of my biggest fears have always been from surveillance, from AI and the other digital technologies used in order to destroy human privacy and create these total surveillance regimes in which somebody follows us all the time, somebody knows us better than we know ourselves. And when I wrote it, this was kind of a futuristic fear. Now it's a reality, at least in some parts of the world. Like if you go to China, it's no longer science fiction, it's no longer futuristic, it's actually happening. It's the first time in human history that you can technically follow everybody all the time. And that's done through Via these apps? Several things. I mean, if you look back in history, 
So say you're Stalin and you want to follow all the people in the Soviet Union all the time. So you have two big problems. Your first problem is you don't have enough KGB agents. Right, you need one for one. Yeah, one for one. Yeah. So 200 million Soviet citizens, you need at least 200 million KGB agents. Yeah. I don't know, they have shifts, they have some <laughs> the time off. Yeah. Probably a couple hundred million to follow the KGB people. Exactly. Oh, yeah, so it's yeah, endless. <laughs> you don't the have enough scheme, agents. Yeah. Secondly, even if you do have an agent following each person every day, At the end of the day, they write a paper report about you. They send it to Moscow. Somebody needs to read all these 200 million, million yeah. pieces of paper every... Nobody can do that. So you cannot follow everybody all the time. Some human privacy is secure, even in the Soviet Union. Now, with AI and smartphones and all that, it's a game changer. Because you don't need millions of human agents to follow everybody around. You have the smartphones. People are paying for the agents <laughs> from their own money and subsidizing their agent and taking the agent everywhere. And even if you don't have your own smartphone, there are other devices of other people. And the second problem of how to analyze all this information, AI. Yeah. You don't need a human to actually read all the data being collected. So you have things like social credit system, which is now being developed, which is basically taking all the data about you and giving you a score. A score of how good a person or a citizen you are, which sounds very nice. It's until like you think, place. Wait a minute, who is determining the score for different things? You're a gay atheist. Yes. You might have a low <laughs> score somewhere. You'd have the highest score in my book. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're in Iran and you're a gay atheist, then, you know, your score is minus million or something. <laughs> and if you're in China and you once told a joke about Xi Jinping, uh-huh. or you read yeah. a book by somebody who was later declared enemy of the people. You preferred your vacation at home. Hong Kong, then yeah. you did the Beijing. Again, the problem is not the AI by itself. It's the usage that certain governments, certain corporations maybe, certain people will make of it. I mean, technology by itself is not bad. It's basically like a knife. You can use a knife to murder somebody. You can use a knife to save their life in surgery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's the same with the new technologies we are developing. But AI is different from a knife in one important respect. It's the first technology that can make decisions by itself. A knife doesn't decide whether to murder or whether to save. But AI is the first technology ever invented that can actually make decisions independently And it is increasingly making decisions about us. So today in the United States, forget about China or Iran, in the US, you apply to a bank to get a loan. Increasingly, it's an AI that decides whether to give you a loan or not. Oh. You apply for a job. Increasingly, it's an AI. In the justice system, increasingly, AI is being used to determine sentences for people. Really? And this is extremely dangerous and scary, partly because the AI becomes so complicated, nobody understands how it actually makes the decision. Yes. You can only set the AI off in a direction. And at some point, we don't understand it, so we have to assume, well, the AI must be right. Exactly, and that's the danger. Six years ago when it started... So people had this idea that, you know, this is just mathematics. Mm-hmm. So AI cannot be racist. AI cannot be misogynist because it's just numbers. It's just math. How can it be racist? Now we know. We have so many studies that prove that AI can be extremely racist. It picks up the racism from the data. If you train AI on a racist database, it becomes racist. Yeah. I mean, if you had bankers refusing loans to black people and giving loans to white people in the same situation, and then you have an AI, you need to train the AI. 
So you'd give the AI a database of previous decisions made by bankers and the outcome, and the AI learns from that. It learns don't give loans to black people. It could discover that you have a 0.01% rate of defaulting on a loan if the customer's white and a 0.02% if the customer's black. The AI doesn't at all think of the historical context that might lead to that exactly. number. It doesn't think of the other factors that might inflate that number. It just sees the number. It sounds great objectivity, but in fact, subjectivity is imperative in so many ways. Exactly, and it's very difficult to get over it because, for instance, you say, okay, 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 the AI should not have any data about race. Mm -hmm. But then, for instance, it finds out that people who live in a certain neighborhood, you shouldn't give them loans. It doesn't know that, oh, it's a specific ethnic group that uh -huh. lives, so it becomes a proxy. There is a very famous example that they give with the Boston Orchestra, that years ago, when they wanted to test new people for the orchestra, a violinist or whatever, they discovered that if the people who decide who to hire, they see the musicians they are biased because of something like gender. Right. Yeah. They would they prefer think men are better violinists. Right. So they said, okay, we'll have a curtain. You sit behind the curtain, you can't see the gender of the person, and then it's a fair decision. But the interesting thing is they realize it's not enough to have a curtain because they are musicians, they are listening very, very carefully. So if somebody comes with high heels, yeah. ah! Yeah. There's so, some jewelry rattling around. So the new rule, you have to come in your socks. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> also, if they all women have about 6,000 different pills in their purse, like Monica They don't travels. need to bring their purse in. So you, if you hear a ton of medication rattling around. Yeah, because Tylenol, all the men are like, can I have Advil? And so the women <laughs> have to, have to exactly. provide it. But there's a lot of giveaways. Also, what's interesting is because it's, quote, blind, it's fun to figure out if it's a male or a female. Your brain is like, oh, but I also want to know because I can't see. So you're also looking extra hard for the clues. Mm. Yeah, you think that you took gender or race out of the equation, but it's actually very hard to know if you did it. Oh. So the danger of kind of racist AI, it's not something that is easy to solve. Yeah. You could get rid of race as a metric the AI looks at. But then open up the rest of the world for the AI to examine. Mm -hmm. And you could find that borrowers who listen to this type of music exactly. defaulted. Yes. You just find its way, hip hop. Then you yeah. could do shoes. You could do Names. dietary. Could, yes. yeah. So many things. I mean, you can't escape that we have some expressions of our microcultures that mm -hmm. generally are lined up by race. Yeah. Yeah, or if you wanted to get rid of hillbillies you look at who's buying these country out you know like you could yeah. find a way to figure it out mm -hmm. and the machine will okay so that's already happening it's happening with loans what's china doing with these scores if you have a low score then you won't be admitted to university oh, oh or, or prestigious God. university you can only go to the lousy universities you cannot buy an airplane ticket Oh. You cannot get a ticket to the fastest trains. You can only go on the slower trains. I mean, there's so many things. Really? But as a result of having a low social credit score. And the thing is, it's everything you do. If you think about money, so money is a system to give value to certain things you do in life. Like you work, you get money for that. But most of the things you do, they don't have a money value. But this is a way to basically monetize the whole of life. Everything you do, you tell a joke, if it's the wrong joke, you lose some oh credit for it. God. If you did something that they liked, you get a score. So it also means that the whole of life 
becomes much, much more stressful. This is not just China. This is also the US, other countries. If you're being monitored all the time and the data is always there, whatever you do, could influence, I mean, your job prospects in 20 years. Yeah. Like you are now a kid in school and you go to a party and you do something stupid, not illegal, and this is recorded. And 20 years later, you are running for being, I don't know, Supreme Court judge or politician or bank appointment. And this data comes up. It never goes away. So the whole of life becomes one long job interview. Yeah. Anything you do, Any moment of your life could meet you 20 years down the line when you're kind of interviewing for a job. Okay, so I'm thinking about that right now. And of course, the first thing I think of is history is absolutely populated with unlikable, uncooperative, outcast misfits who have brought us the biggest breakthroughs, the best movements, the finishing of the Panama Canal. History's not made up of people with a high social score. Not always. I guess you'd have to immediately say is, okay, if we're going to enact this policy, we're only going to give resources and fast trains and higher education to people who are fitting in the norm we want. History would tell you you're going to miss out on the Picassos and the, mm -hmm. all these different people, right? And so my question is, they must recognize that. I'll miss out on Picasso, but I get more powerful control of every person in the country. I'm not looking for Bezos. I'm yes. not looking for Elon yeah. Musk. I have me. I have Putin. I don't yeah, want... All I need. <laughs> that's all I need. Yeah. I don't want Picassos and Bezos and so forth. Yeah. But don't countries, as a governmental policy for China, don't they recognize they're going to be ill-equipped to compete? It's the price that many of them are willing to pay. You talk about Bezos. So Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, uh -huh. he disappeared for a couple of months, a year or two ago. Nobody knows exactly where. The Chinese government also took a lot of other steps against the kind of big high-tech companies, which really undermined the business of these companies. And you just look at the share prices of Tencent and Baidu and Alibaba, and it really went down. And now is there zero COVID policy. It's really hurting the Chinese economy. But for the CCP, for the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, this is a price we're willing to pay. These powerful companies, they became too powerful. They became a threat. Yes. We need to put them down a little or much. Before it gets completely out yeah, of control. Yeah, if this means that the Chinese economy suffers to some extent, if this means that China is a little behind in the technology race, this is fine with us because political control is ultimately more important than anything else. Mm. And again, this is the kind of strength of a democracy. And this is why you do see that even though in the short term, autocratic countries sometimes do better because they can take decisive, fear, quick action or something. You can build the Autobahn. Yeah. In the long term, democracies tend to perform much better. Right. Mm. Interesting. <sighs> wow. all oh. Harari. Yuval Noah Harari, most popular name in America. <laughs> Let's hope that Yuval makes it next yes, year. Let's just exactly. go through your whole name. Unstoppable Us, Volume 1, How Humans Took Over the World. Is it safe to assume there'll be more volumes and will you take us even closer yeah. to present day? There should be four volumes altogether. Mm. So the first volume, it focuses on the Stone Age. But again, it's not just about the Stone Age. It's about how the Stone Age still shapes our life today, our emotions, our social system, it's still based in the Stone Age. And then the following volumes, 
they look at the agricultural revolution mm. and how we domesticated chickens and pigs and wheat and rice and built kingdoms and empires. Guns, germs, and steel. Yeah, and then it goes all the way, I mean, volume three and volume four to the present era, explaining to kids what democracy is and capitalism and the scientific revolution and all these things. Oh, Ugh, my amazing. God. Don't go to school. I'm going to pull, pull my kids out of school and just read these books. I'm going to pull my these four books. There'll only be one founding father in our house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Very low on the China likability scale, but just. And you said we could write in the book so we can amend You can write in the book, you can amend the book, definitely. (laughs) I mean, to be honest, I'm sure there are some mistakes there. Every year they make new discoveries. So like in five years or 10 years, they'll discover some new human species. So absolutely amend the book. Amazing. You said, so in writing this book, you're basically saying to children, do I want them to carry my ideas, my religions, my wars, my memories? Here, kid, I carried these up to here. Now you carry them. Or do I want to help liberate them from their fears, their illusions, their misery? See these kids? I got stuck with them for years. Be careful. You don't have to pick them up. Oof. Bam! It's good. Bam! (laughs) You all, you rule. It felt like 11 minutes. I love when you visit. I hope you'll keep writing. Yeah, thanks for coming to the attic. I will come back. Please. (laughs) Last time you were lost, I don't know if you remember. Maybe it was not last time, it was the first time. Yeah, when you went to You went to a friend's house that was 45 feet that way. (laughs) But the route you took to get 45 feet this way ended up being about nine minutes. Yeah. It's complicated. <laughs> it's very memorable. People should make guffaws when you introduce somebody because it's like a permanent memory. Like, mm-hmm. remember when you all took 15 <laughs> minutes to go 45 feet? Thanks for coming. Thank Great you. to see you. Please come back. I will. Thanks for having me. And now my favorite part of the show, the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Padman. What a good episode. I love him. Me too. He's by far... One of my favorite people to listen to talk. I know. He's so well-spoken. Even with his accent, he's speaking uh, English as a second language, maybe third. He has to overcome a lot, uh-huh. but he does it. We should catch up on something. Okay. I didn't finish it, so I can't say too much, but you told me to watch a doc after our last fact check about... No. Falwell Jr.? Yes. Oh, my God. Did you watch it? I started it. So I haven't finished. Oh, I loved it. But it was so on topic of what we were just discussing in the previous fact check. It was crazy because it was about a scandal, which I didn't know about. I didn't either. But the Liberty College director, I guess, owner, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, chairman. He was caught, like, watching his His wife have sex. With a young man. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like a seven-year-long thing. Yes, so just for people who aren't super abreast of the Falwells, Jerry Falwell Sr. was the first person to politicize the evangelical movement yeah. and create a voting block called the Moral Majority and has shaped politics so dramatically. The previous three Republican presidents, four, Reagan, the two Bushes, and Trump, uh-huh. they basically got to go to Falwell and get his approval. Yeah. Kingmaker, they referred to him. Yeah. So then his son comes along and it is determined that the son isn't going to be the best preacher, that that's not really his lane. But then he shows a lot of business aptitude. They put him in charge of Liberty College, this biggest Christian university in the country, yeah. probably the world, I'd guess. And he and his wife have this high flying lifestyle and they party and they meet a boy who's a pool attendant at a Miami hotel 
and they invite them on a date and they Jerry watches them make love. Yeah. Okay, so what was your impression? Because I have such a specific takeaway from it, mm-hmm. which is going to probably shock you. Um. Well, and and then all to say, he got like fired from the university. Like uh, it all came out. It all came out and crashing for him. Uh huh. And other allegations with other oh. students that had visited their compound and whatnot. Got so just it. really embroiled in a lot of atypical sexual activities. Yes. Not in line with the moral majority values. I mean, my main takeaway was if you grow up in this extremist household, mm-hmm. which she did, extreme religion, you're going to come out with Something's some perversions. Crack. Yeah, mm-hmm. you just are. And I, and what we sort of said last time, I don't really care what right. you, I don't what care you do. People have three ways. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't care what, what you do as long as, you know, everyone's consenting, which in this case they were, it seems. Oh, yeah. My weird takeaway, like if you scrap the hypocrisy just for a second, you take that off the table, that he's being a huge hypocrite. Yes. That the Liberty College has this code of conduct. He's violating every single thing that he's encouraging people to follow. So just if we can table that part of it, there was something oddly sweet about the notion that those two had this weird trust for one another and that I guess that would have been grossed out if it was her watching him fuck young girls. Yeah. Gender-wise would have triggered me. Yeah. But the fact that it was his older wife having sex with this younger man and he was there and he was really kind to the guy. And yeah, the, he was. There was something really weirdly sweet about it where I was like, this is like, let's just assume he's trusting his wife enough to quote, allow her to have these experiences and he's there. And what's interesting is he never got like psychotic jealous. Like there's, mm-hmm. she was in love with this young guy. Yeah. And he would even say to him like, well, you really broke Becky's heart when you started dating that girl. Like he would kind of be there for his way. It's interesting. It's, look, it's so abnormal, the it whole is. situation. It is. But within it, I was like, if you if they're just two humans, that this is their, their yeah. vacations, there's something bizarrely trusting and, and sweet about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The, it, the problem comes from the forward-facing persona versus what's going on yes. behind the scenes. And then it, and it escalates. You're probably not that part of the document. Mm-hmm. But once he gets obsessed with Trump, oh. his rhetoric starts escalating dramatically. He's also... A tremendous alcoholic by that point. Like during when his downfall happens, he's drunk in public everywhere. I mean, he has a whole other thing. So then the other great takeaway for me of the doc was people at their most dangerous when they get everything they wanted. Mm -hmm. Because, and I speak as someone who got everything they wanted, there's no accompanying elation. And I think so many people who end up like billionaires or whatever they get, they're like, now what? Yeah, that's our whole show. Yeah, now what? And I think their thing was like, all of a sudden they're now they're, They got to do something more extraordinary sexually. They got to party harder. Like there's just no there there. Yeah. And then these people in search of that there end up in these bizarre. Totally. Yeah. It's just an interesting take on what's after getting everything you're supposed to get. Yeah. Kind of some deplorable. Did we say that word? No. Deviant. Um, Deviant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It get kinky to feel like now I'm doing something that's different. That part's really curious to me. And then it introduced the term. So we had been talking about this scenario, but the the popular term for it is a cuck. Cuckold. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cuck 
For sure, for cuckold. Yeah, yeah. Shakespearean. Shakespearean, sure. yeah. All hell. It's kind of, or I shouldn't say it's common, but I, I know of this also occurring in the gay community as like a fetish. Th- thruple, uh, just watching your partner get yeah. fucked? Oh, yeah. okay, okay. And when I heard about that, I was like, oh, wow. It kind of goes to show, doesn't matter how liberal you are or how open you are, I think that we're programmed to believe that being gay is already outside of norms. Right. You're no longer, you, you're not playing by the rules anymore anyway. So then you're allowed to do, or like anything Sky's that's happening the over there is already like, oh, well, it's already a little different. So no wonder all this other stuff I've is I've already been on. shamed yeah. to death over this orientation I have. Yeah. So what's a little more shame? Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of get good at just going, well, fuck you in your shame, I think. Right. There's an ownership over it. Uh-huh. And I kind of hold that position, which is there isn't any morality in sex. Yeah. Again. Yeah. <laughs> assuming you're not hurting anyone or raping anyone. Yeah. There's no morality. Yeah. There's no right or wrong. We lived as polygamous for the vast majority of time we humans have been on this planet. So yeah. this monogamy experiment is quite relatively new. Yeah. That's not to say I'm not a proponent of it. It's just there was no amorality about it. Yeah. You know, a thousand years ago. I know. It's I mean, all of Greece was bisexual. You just got to go like, okay, everything can just flip on a dime. And, yeah. You know. It's just about culture, really. Mm-hmm. Great doc. Yeah, I'm going to finish it. Are you caught up on White Lotus? Yes. So good. I love how she talks. Why are you leaving me now? I'm going to be lonely. You don't even like me. Jennifer Coolidge, I oh, know. She's so good. She's so good. <laughs> I imagine Mike White just lets the camera roll and let her say kind of whatever. Yeah, was it you and I that were told the story that the first season didn't, that a lot of stuff wasn't scripted for her? And one was yeah. just like her in the ocean. Oh, my buddy Peter was telling me. He's like, just, you know, there's nothing written, but we need you in the ocean. And there's this long scene with her, just, you know, getting crazy <laughs> in the ocean. And it's like, yeah, I imagine they build in a lot of space for her to be Coolidge. The tension. I think he does such a good job of building a war, like who's right. Like yeah, nobody's right. I love it. Nobody. Yeah, the is two right. couples is great. They are, and I vacillate back and forth. Yeah. I'm like ugh to one, and then ugh to the other, and you're just Same. a constant. It's so well done. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh God, and the like really nice guy. <laughs> oh my God, we were watching that last night. I don't think we need to give anything away no. by saying that there's a super respectful boy on the show yeah. whose father and grandfather are with him, and they are both very sexually aggressive. Yeah. So this boy is the antithesis of them. Yeah. And he meets a girl, and it's that. <laughs> I, I, we were watching it last night, and I said, fucking humans are so complex, and they'll never be a solution. I know. You want the boy to be exactly that, and you might be dry as the Sahara because of it. What do we do about that? Not attractive, (laughs) but it is exactly (laughs) what what we need and want. It's so crazy. Oh, it is. And it's so honest. I'm so glad that's being shown because everyone would love to live in a fairy tale where just acting like that would get you what you think it should. I know. But no, some dirtbag with tattoos jumps in the water, and you're like, I want to be fucked by that guy. I know. And then the nice guy comes sauntering mm. up and is like so sweet and it's cringy. And then yeah. you're so mad at yourself for feeling that. Yes, guilt. Oof. Well, it's that, um, the fake podcast by, so Kyle Dunnigan has a podcast called Pussies and it's a podcast 
about women for women by men. Yeah. And they're making this really impassioned speech about women's rights. And then the first caller, she's like, hey, yeah, I'd love the show. I'd love you guys are saying exactly what I want to hear, but I am fucking dry as hell. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh, it's I don't so think we can live in a world up. though where we don't admit that. I, I just agree. don't know. Like I don't know how we transcend it if we don't first admit it. Like, I agree. It's so wild. I agree. But it's it's because we are all programmed in the exact same system. Women aren't not in the patriarchy. We are. Yeah. And culture is the most powerful force in our life, but also we are animals on planet Earth to fucking procreate. Yeah. And we we are subconsciously assessing fitness yeah. in the scientific term, fitness for a mate. Yeah. In a way that we're not aware of. Totally. But what I will say, what's great about the casting is that boy is gorgeous. so beautiful. Oh, he's gorgeous. His body's beautiful. Yes. His face is beautiful. Yeah. He's tall. And so I like that he didn't pick like some very stereotypical, maybe nerdy, per like he looks, he's hot. Yes. Which again is is fascinating because yeah. it might say that's why I say fitness in quotes in the evolutionary term fitness doesn't mean physically fit. So you might subconsciously let's just this is a hypothetical. I am not saying this is what it is, yeah. but it is possible that as a social primate that understands that your offspring have the very best chance of surviving if their father is high status. Right. Let's start with that's the baseline fact of a social primate. Yeah. Which is true. What you could subconsciously be knowing about that boy is that's not the personality type that will rise to high status in a position of authority within a social group. Yeah, maybe. Which is Forget the, bummer. like, can he fight his way to the top? Right. Which is what his body would lead you to believe. Well, he is a physical specimen. But yeah. there might be something subconscious that says this person, this isn't the attributes of our species that right. end up being the highest status male in a group. Well, though, then that transfers on to the couples mm -hmm. because there's one of the men. Alpha male. There's an alpha male, and then there's what seems to be sort of a beta male, but he's not. He, yeah, he's, he's the big rich. winner. Yeah. Yeah, and he just got super rich, and it's like messing with that yes. too. So juicy. God, Because that's such a part of our current society yeah. too is all these unconventional – Males have become alpha males. Also, there's a character who's of what seems to be a vapid woman mm -hmm. on the surface. Mm -hmm. And the more we meet her, you realize she kind of just has it figured out. Yeah, she seems yes. clever. It asks these great questions in life, which is like, what is the goal? Exactly. What is the goal? Ah, that brings me to a great piece of housekeeping. Okay. I believe people who watch the race on Sunday who know I'm obsessed with Formula One and Max Verstappen will be really needing me to respond okay. to something that happened. Okay. Were you ready for that transition? Yeah. Okay. His teammate, Checo Perez, who absolutely laid down on his sword for Max last season. He sacrificed one of his qualifying sessions just so he could give Max a toe so that Max could get him pulled to beat Lewis. He held Lewis up. Anytime he could, so wow. he couldn't get up to max, like fought for his life. He was his wingman. In the most sacrificial way yeah. in my short time watching the sport that's ever been seen. Okay. Across the board last season, everyone was like, Checo is the soldier of all soldiers. He's there to bring that team a victory wow. and he is willing to sacrifice for it. That's amazing. Loyalty, 
uh, it's never been on such display. Currently, Max has already won the championship. Right. right. So his season's over. He won. Uh, yeah. How many more um, <laughs> Two. races? Okay. Sundays and then next week. So Perez is almost identically tied with Leclerc for second place. Oh. The last three laps of the race, Max, who had been crashed into, worked his way back up from last place. Oh, my God. He is driving much faster than Checo. It's a fact. He passes Checo. Uh-huh. <laughs> he passes Checo and the team. Now, this came out today. They did not play any of the radio communications on the broadcast, which they normally do. Yeah. They started telling Max, let Checo buy. Yeah. So he can finish in fourth. You'll finish in fifth. He'll get more points in his race with Leclerc. Max just doesn't acknowledge he's been asked this. Uh-huh. They keep saying it to him, Max, Max, what? let him buy, let him buy. He crosses the finish line, and they said, Max, what happened? And he finally comes on, and he goes, I told you I don't ever want to talk about this. I told you last summer this is my position. I'll never do this, and I stand by my decision. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. First of all, it's a total bummer. Checo deserved it so much. He deserved it so much. Uh, that's first and foremost. Secondly... I wish Max had a little bit of a 30,000-foot view because he just ruined the shine of his championship. Like, he was going to finish the season as a celebrated champion. He did it in record fashion, won the most races, got the most points in a season. He's already a hero of heroes. Everyone's now completely disappointed in Mm -hmm. him making that decision. So he took this great thing, and he just put the shittiest fucking film over it for no reason. So that's my verdict. And yet, I am not in the least bit surprised. I absolutely expect him to do that. I think for him, his ethics are very clear. He is a race car driver whose dedication at every moment is to get any points available to him. Well, yeah, I don't think he has ethics. I think he just has one goal. Well, his ethics are, he has, he's like a doctor, right? That is committed to, you know, he has an oath. Yeah. What is obvious to me is his oath is, my job as a race car driver is to get every point available to me at all times. I yeah. never, ever not try to finish as high up as I can no matter what. Yeah. That's my commitment. Yeah. So his ethics aren't obscure to me. I disagree with them. But right. they're not obscure to me. Yeah. This is a freak of nature who'd kill himself to win. I'm not so shocked that in this moment he was totally rude, bad teammate. Bad Not person. nice. <laughs> That's a bad person thing to do. I mean, that just wow. It's a bummer. I'm still a Max fan, but it's I know, a, it's a real bummer. It's a real. It's a bummer. Yeah. yeah. But I agree. It's like mm. uh, what. Really? I'm not, it's not shocked. A shock. No, I'm not shocked. He's proven himself to be that. Yeah, he almost killed himself like five times last season to beat Lewis. Yeah. Do I am I shocked that he was just rude? makes me sad that uh, that like nice guy it's back to nice guys. Yeah. Well it, it raises <laughs> weirdly a similar point, which is can you be the guy that wins back to back championships and not the best car? And also be the guy that gives up a spot at the end of the race to be nice? Does that person exist? Yeah, but also I don't want to procreate with Max. I'd much no, rather procreate Daniel. with Daniel. Well, obviously oh, yeah, Daniel. That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Obvi. Yeah. But with this person who is like loyal and doing their best yes. for the team and then Who do you want to be friends with? You want to be friends with Checo. Exactly. That dude is there for you. Like that person in life is 
take Admirable. racing out of yeah. it. He's succeeding. Long after racing ends, he has an integrity. Exactly. That will attract other people to him for life. He's going to be the winner in all this. Okay. So a couple facts, obviously not very many. Mm. He said Israel has about 9 million citizens, 9.364 million. Oh, so he got that completely wrong. Yeah, he was yeah. wrong. Good. I thought it was interesting we were talking about hyenas hanging around lions mm. because Lion King. That's depicted in Lion King. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. they're the great adversaries. Yeah, they're mean guys, baddies. Hyenas? Yeah. Again, it's so subjective. Like, <gasps> No, they're bad they're, guys in the they're movie. They're not pretty. Oh, in the movie, yes, yeah. yes, yes. They're the bad guys. Yeah. Absolutely. And his brother, right? He's got a shit brother. Well, Scar. That his name yeah. Scar? Yeah, that guy's a prick. <laughs> yeah, Scar killed his own brother. Mufasa. Yeah. So oh. sad. Cutthroat. My mom cried in that. And that was the first time I saw her cry. Did it scare you? Yeah. It did. I didn't like it. Did you tell her to stop? Yeah. Make you a milkshake? <laughs> stop crying. Stop Make me a milkshake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Oh, I missed one. Oh, oh. Hold on. Okay. Give me two seconds. Okay. I went to a wedding in Utah. Tell me about the wedding in Utah. My good buddy Tyler Laguzzo. Yeah. Got married to Alexis. Okay. And it was a wedding out in Utah among these beautiful rock rock crops, you know, like big, huge rock formations oh, in cool. red. Very dramatic, very beautiful. I took the two little girls by myself, which was so fun. In the bus? No, in a car. Oh, I don't know why I thought you took the bus. I was in that white suburban I rented. Oh, weird. I'm very I, comical I imagined too, right? you in the bus. No, too slow. Oh, I wanted to get there. Got it. But they both little girls, which was so fun because I got like just, if Kristen's available, she's a better option. They're going to talk to her. They're going to mm. ask her for things. I just really can't compete with the appeal of it. So okay. just they were stuck with me. Lincoln was sitting up front and we were chatting. And I was saying like, do you ever fantasize about your life in the future? I got to hear, like, things she fantasizes about, mm. being a good soccer player. Oh. Like, she wants to be, like, she pictures herself scoring goals at Ooh. school and the boys being really impressed. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. oh. Then we talked about, um, do you ever, at, at night, laying in bed, like, go over some things you're embarrassed about? And she's like, oh, yes. And I said, oh, I do this all the time. I told her this great story. I probably have told you about it. But I said, here's one, hon, that I think about at least once a week before going to bed. When I was in high school, I was obsessed with Party of Five, and mostly because of Nev Campbell. Of course. I was just heartbroken in love with her. Yeah. I'd almost cry. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm not going to be with this human being. <laughs> yes. This is, I know you know it. Well, you felt it with Matt and Ben. Mm -hmm. Like, this is wrong. Injustice. Injustice. So I moved to L.A., my friend Nate Tuck produces a movie. I come on to play volunteer at a party. <laughs> I have no lines. I throw up in the background, but I'm there all night, and it's a night shoot. And so some of Nate's buddies are in town from college. We're drinking on set. We're drinking Jack and Cokes out of a normal Coke bottle. Yeah. And we go all through the night. In the morning, they put out breakfast. We're still shooting. I saddle up next to her at the buffet line. She's in the movie, Wait, Nev Campbell. Yeah, Nev you, Campbell is the star of this movie. That's a big I'm so sorry. That should have been said a minute ago. Okay. Cool. I got to add, really fun element of this is during the day, Matthew Lillard, who was dating her at the time, mm. visited her. And I knew Matthew Lillard from Scream. 
Right. I have no idea I'm going to be in a movie ding, ding, with ding. him I in know. seven years. How crazy. But I was looking at him, and I'm like, of course he's with him. He's, like, so stylish and cool, and he's so tall and real. I remember thinking, like, he's a catch. Yeah. Well, I he have is. my work cut out we for We love me. him. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Anywho, he's gone. Fuck him. <laughs> I saddle up next to her at the buffet line where she's grabbing, presumably, a breakfast burrito or something. Yeah. And I go, um... What are you going to have for breakfast? Man, you've been drinking for, I don't know, 12 hours. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you, uh, what are you fixing to have for breakfast? And she's like, oh, I'm going to have blah, blah, blah. What are you going to have? And I go, oh, I'm going to drink my breakfast. Right. And you I have told think me that. I have. <laughs> this is the worst. Yeah. In my little circle at 23 years old, that's cool. That would have been cool. Oh, if I was in Michigan, <laughs> that would have been such a cool thing to say. She looked at me like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, you know, yeah. of course. <laughs> oh, no, this person's struggling. Yeah. And what are they doing on set? And are Who they in is this, this person? <laughs> this is person who's clearly, you know, been drinking all night yeah. and now into the morning. Yeah. And it just wasn't at all what I was expecting. Yeah. And so I think about that from time to time just to keep myself humble. But also it, you know, you're not that anymore. I'm not, yeah. If she, Nev, if you're listening, let's try this again. It's, let's give this a shot. It's good to have uh, reminders of growth. So most of my found that most of the things I think about while sleeping or go, trying to go to sleep is it's times I thought I was cool. That's mm. pretty much the greatest source of embarrassment for me. And I even have one from when I was like seven years old and my mom picked me up from school mm. and I sat on the floor instead of the seat. Oh, you've told like, me yes. this, yeah. And she was like trying to ask how my day was and I was just like over it. I was like, eh, that Kids do this. <laughs> but I remember feeling so cool. Well, you felt fraudulent. <laughs> That's why you still think about it. No, in the moment, I thought I was super cool and that what I was doing was cool. And then as I got older, I looked back and realized, what were you doing? Are why you, were you sure? I think you must have in the moment felt, I know this is cool, but something's wrong because your brain wouldn't have registered to remember it if that were the case. I kind of disagree because really? even the Nev thing, I remember going back to the <laughs> college buddies and bragging about what I just said to her. I thought it was awesome. I know consciously, but I think there's something subconscious. That's why you're a good person. Because you there is a peace happening I even when bad stuff changes. And then I'm now looking at my life through a totally different perspective. Yeah. Which I just didn't have. I couldn't have guess, but you don't remember every other day. I don't know. I just I want I'm just giving you some credit. I think oh, okay. I think I think I you knew, knew somehow, like, mm, ooh, ooh, yeah. this something's wrong. I don't feel good about making my mom feel dumb, and I don't feel good about this drinking yeah. breakfast. Whatever it is, it's that is the thing I'll replay as yeah. times I thought I was really cool, yeah, and I wasn't. What are yours? Are they like mistakes you've made, or are they moments? Meanness. Meanness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rob, do you have a thing that you like? You beat yourself up over? Yeah. Oh, okay. What is it? <laughs> When I was younger, I, I broke this watch that my grandpa gave me. Uh, on accident? On accident. I was like a little basketball hoop. Oh, but and that sounds like well, no, no, very no, pure. No, we're not to the, <laughs> yeah, not I don't to think we're oh. to the regrettable part. Yeah, no, you don't regret a mistake. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I hit it and pretended like I found it, and then my brother broke it. Oh, sure. He got in trouble Oh, you it. blamed it on your yeah. brother. Yeah, he Ooh. got like ADHD after that, so for a while <laughs> so I was you like, yourself. this is why his <laughs> oh uh, my God, behavior spiraled. Rob, mm. It might but have been. He admitted to it eventually, yeah. which I don't Oh, my God. 
my God, false confession. Yeah, interrogation episode. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, do you want me to keep that in about ADHD? He had behavioral issues. <laughs> okay, I don't think that's any better, but I have that with my brother because I would be mean to him. Yeah, you're eight years older. Yeah, but I was mean, and my mom would say, you're going to screw him up. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, oh, uh-huh. she would be really clear about that. Yeah, you're, like, you're don't... damaging him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, man, this is life on planet Earth. When you have siblings, it alters the course of your life for sure. Yeah. I'm writing about it a ton right now. Yeah. Well, especially if you have older. Yes. You know, I always declare this. I obviously have a lot of things I focus on, but certainly one of my primary focuses in life is not being deceived. Yes. Oh, yes. Right. I mean, it's brutal. And so I'm kind of like charting when that started. Obviously, I have some big clues, like I was deceived by a molester, right? So that's one. But it really, when I think about it, it starts right out of the gates, which is this great family story about me that everyone loves to tell is that my brother would offer me a cup of water when I was like two years old. You want a cup of water, Dax? He was seven. I'd say yes, and he'd put scalding hot water in the cup (gasps) and he'd give it to me. And everyone loves to tell the story because you get to do my reaction, which is this. Ooh, hot. Oh. (laughs) Right? It's like, first it's like, ooh, this is new. And then the hot is like, I've labeled this. This is hot. No one else should drink out of this. Oh, that's and then he would smart. go, oh, my gosh, is that hot? Let me get you another glass. He'd go and he'd fill up with hot water again. He'd oh come and God. give it to me. I'd go, ooh, hot. Okay. I think that means you're just a smart kid. Did I know what hot water yeah. is? Yeah. <laughs> what? Everyone knows what hot or they cold do? water is. Sure. Oh. But, you know, it's mild and it's for a comedic end. It's not nefarious. I don't like it. Okay. But another thing is he he told me to throw a rock through the auto parts window when I was three. I threw a rock through this glass window. We got chased. We got brought back to our the babysitter. Again, this is a family story that gets told every time we're all together. And so the babysitter called my mom at work and uh, she said, put Dax on. And then my mom said, what happened, Dax, or what did you do? Very encouraging. Like, no matter what it was, I'm going to accept you. Yes. Very soft landing. And I looked at David, and David nodded, <laughs> tell her, and I said, I threw a fucking rock through the auto parts window. So my brother had told me, when you tell mom what you did, tell her you threw a fucking rock through the auto parts oh, window. So my God. mother has to cover the phone, and she starts laughing so hard, and she's at work. And then she calls her buddy Forrest. She's working in the tool crib. She calls him over to the phone and says, I'm sorry, Dex, it's so loud in here. Will you tell me again what happened? Uh-uh. I threw a fucking rock through the auto oh. parts window. And then she goes, okay, well, we'll talk about when you get home. Put your brother on. Uh-huh. So, again, I don't know saying fucking rock is bad. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know throwing the rock to begin with, you but then we were chased. Yes. And now, and so, and then my brother gets on the phone, and now he is clearly busted. He's going, I know, okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> right? Yeah. The whole situation is so confusing. What has yeah. happened? Right. You don't she know did, what's going on. She didn't respond on. to fucking. Now he's in trouble. I'm the one who threw the rock. What is going on? Yeah. So, Things, conspiracies were afoot yeah, from sure. day one. Sure. So, at, you know, it served me well to find out, like, what is someone really motivated by? Yeah. Yeah. They don't even have to be bad things. They can just be innocuous, silly, fun, right. comical no, things I from your it. childhood. Speaking of writing, because you're writing these stories down, mm. um, my gift guide's coming up. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Are you going to be a little more ahead of it this year? Yeah. Because it stressed I, you out so much last year. <laughs> I did. You I kept started canceling it. it, but then you did it. I know. I have a feeling the same thing's going to happen. Okay. But I did start 
this weekend you did. with my first post. I had a f- Wait, you already dropped the post? No, no. I oh, just you I just full was, formulated it. Yeah, I was deciding what I was gonna put. Can you give it to me early? Oh, you because I don't like waiting and then there might be a run on the products because oh, you're so popular. Okay. And you know I I buy everything you recommend. <laughs> I on there. know. Yeah, I'll send it to you beforehand. Okay, thank you. Anyway, so keep your eyes peeled for the gift guide. You gotta use it. You got it'll save your ass. Especially if you have in-laws. Think social media currently. And uh yeah. Also, we gotta talk about the prompts. Okay. We put it what out. Happened? Uh we gotta announce them. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it sounded like there was a big, big problem with the prompts. No, no, we no. We gotta talk about the prompts. Well, we just have to talk about them because we oh, haven't okay. talked about them. We have December prompts up uh-huh. on the website. If you haven't seen them, um, please submit. And as I recall, those prompts are: tell me the, tell me about the time you had Priapus. No, nope. tell us about your craziest snow day memory. Okay, craziest snow day memory, great. Mm-hmm. Tell us about a nightmare holiday experience. Nightmare holiday experience. There were some good examples. A menorah catching the house on fire. Yeah. Right? We want to include Jewish folks, Christian folks, Everyone. all celebrators of holidays. Everyone. There was a This American Life from a long time ago Okay. that was so good, and it was about holiday stories, bad ones, kind of traumatic ones. Mm-hmm. And there was one about this family of... Now adults who basically have like a bunch of trauma around Christmas because their parents were so into it. Okay. And like Santa and reindeer and they like hired reindeer to kind of- To walk on the roof? They just now had these insane trust issues. Okay. Because they'd be like, is this real? And they'd be like, yes. And then there'd be- deceived. Yeah. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Oh my gosh. So anyway, if you guys have anything like that, please share. Yeah, that would be tasty. Yeah. Okay, so I found my fact that I lost. Oh, great. Which is hyenas are 180 pounds and mastiffs are 140. It says the spotted hyena, the female is 98 to 140, and it says the male is 89 to 120. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so I got that way wrong. I thought for sure they were 180 pounds. Maybe there's been some. But it's but a matriarchy. That doesn't surprise me that the women are taller yeah, or bigger. Yeah, it's all about size. And they have that clitoris that mimics a penis. They oh. thought forever, biologists thought they were looking at males, and then they discovered that. Um, and then mastiffs, female, 120 to 170. Oh, wow. Male 160 to 230. Oh, 230. I want to see a 230 male. I don't. I'm oh. scared of that. Okay, the hominin who discovered fire. Yeah, hominid. Well, I put that and then it corrected to hominin. I put hominid. Yeah, a hominid is a bipedal great ape. That's us. Right. Maybe hominin is plural of hominid. Because I typed that in. And then my whole life could be based on a lie if it's not hominid. I mean, I feel like you would know, but I, I should. That's what I'm saying. I gotta, I gotta turn in my degree. No, I got this wrong. I just felt weird because I put that in, and then it seemed like I was wrong. Okay, but maybe who knows? Google knows everything. Oh, um, Rob, what are you seeing? Hominid. Yeah, hominid. I'm, I'm seeing hominid as a word. What's the definition? I don't know why. Hominid sounds like a um. A literary term like onomatopoeia, synonym, homonym. H O M I N I D, right? Yeah. 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 Primate, a primate of a family that includes humans and their fossil ancestors. 
Maybe it's both because this also, if you type in hominid versus hominin, it says hominin is a term given to humans and all of our extinct bipedal ancestors. Maybe it's both. Wow, that's yeah. exciting. As long as I'm not wrong, I don't oh. mind co- oh. This says, yeah, this says hominin is a term given to humans and all of our extinct bipedal ancestors, those ancestors who walked upright on two feet. Hominid is the term given to all modern and extinct great apes, including humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, and all their immediate ancestors, which would include those people. I, I wouldn't say uh, um, a chimpanzee is a hominid. For sure I wouldn't. Really? That's interesting. Anyways, T TBD. Okay, well, it says Homo erectus. <laughs> yeah, now we're talking erectus. Homo erectus yeah. is what they they think likely invention of fire. Oh, uh, Mm -hmm. Or had control of fire. Mm. They didn't, I guess they didn't invent fire. Lightning oh, did. Yeah, they, they didn't yeah. invent it, but they got control of it. They sure did. A meaningful and profound way. Yeah. It's so cool we can control fire. It is. Ever since we talked to Yuval, I, whenever I see fire, I do think of that when how he said we're kind of we're programmed to be attracted to it. Yes, instead of running from it. Yeah, and it's true because I'm scared of everything, but I'm... Drawn. I am. I mean, I am scared of things catching on fire, but I love a fireplace and a fire pit. Oh, I just you you asked him to identify the Achilles in our thinking, and that reminded me of Charlie. Oh yeah, Charlie's Achilles. Yeah, we already mentioned that. We right? mentioned on, it on Lane, maybe. Yeah, we mentioned it. I'm putting together. This might excite you or not. What this this morning? I spearheaded a group workout. Charlie, Perfect 10 Charlie, Huberman, Lane Norton, and I at Charlie's gym. Great. Because Lane's going to be in town at the end of November. Oh, that's so nice. Is he going to be, is he going to be so upset because of his leg? No, he'll just like jerk off. He'll just spray all over us. Yeah, like a cuck, like we just talked oh, about. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly. It'll be sweet too. Oh, my God. Um, no, he'll lift with, he'll bench press a million pounds. It'll and, be even more impressive. Yeah, he'll probably do some squats with no Achilles. <laughs> One legged squats with crutches. Oh, man. Well, that would be very fun. Yeah. Maybe you want to stand in the corner. I don't know. I'll think about it. Okay. I don't think I'd be standing. Okay, you be sitting, I, laying on the like a stool or something. Uh, yeah, I can't. Uh, standing isn't ideal. To masturbate. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> As a man, you some some men are very much into standing while masturbating. I'm not, but once in a while, I'll I'll wheel it out like something special. Huh? Like, oh, let's try something new today. That is interesting because I feel like in movies and stuff, they do often depict it standing. But there are men who in their bedroom, given the option of sitting on their bed or lying on their bed, will stand erect, homo erectus. And it appears from the fall will, Doc, that Jerry Jr. was in fact standing <laughs> he was in while the pleasing himself. Yeah. Most people in movies that are masturbating not supposed to be masturbating. So they need, need like a quick getaway. Oh, that's, that's an interesting thought. Although in White Lotus, <laughs> ding, 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 first episode or second episode. Yeah, he's laying in the bed. He is laying in the bed. Sure. But then, and he's not supposed to. So he jumps. Yeah, he he's jumps erect. up and he's right. Mm. I really liked that scene. This podcast, we could just make it about going over White Lotus. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. There are podcasts like that. You like that scene? Yeah, because she comes in as, she's not angry that he was masturbating. She's like, what's this about? 
Right. She's just annoyed he didn't wait for her, but she's not mad at him for watching porn. Right. I kind of, I liked that. Yeah, 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 that she wasn't threatened by it. Or just, it wasn't this depiction of this woman who hates that when their husband watches porn or. Well, what's funny too is like, I'm I'm sure that um, Kristen would have no issue walking in and finding me jerking off, but I don't want anyone to walk in. Well, of course, I don't think anyone wants. Like, it does elicit this kind of. um, just knee-jerk reaction of caught, yeah. embarrassed, yes. Feels, primal. Yeah, Arr. it's very vulnerable. Yes, yes, and it's just you've been caught pleasing yourself. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. Now, if you sign up for it, that's a blast between two folks. You know, sure. let's do this in front of each other. Let's get Jerry in here. Let's right. get the whole congregation, and let's all do this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, okay. I love you, and love I apologize you. to you all a little bit, you know. Well... He's, he's a very high caliber thinker in our society, and he got really drug in the mud on whether or not you should lay down or stand up. Well, this is what style. we do. Yeah. The interview itself was pretty professional. Yeah. We kept it on the rails when it counted. Yeah. I love you. Love you. Love you.